What's with this band anyway? I don't get it, can you please explain? Wait, like bands playing? And welcome to Bandsplain. I am your host, Yossi Salik. This is a show where I invite an expert guest on to explain a cult band or iconic artist to me and to you. Today's episode is part one of our two-part episode about Radiohead. If you've never heard Radiohead, I will call the karma police to arrest this man. This is what Radiohead sounds like. My guest today is the one and only Cole Kuchna, host of the glorious podcast, Dissect. Welcome to the show, Cole. Hey, Yossi. You know, I was thinking today, Cole, um, because sometimes I read the mean comments about me on the internet when I'm (laughs) self-harming and someone was like, it's just so monotone. And I was like, secretly, they don't know that I'm like so happy about that because in my mind, I sound like like a mentally ill clown, like a truly like, screeching clown. And then I was like, well, they're about to hear Cole. <laughs> Maybe it'll put it into perspective. Right. This is like a Titans collide here. The monotone Titans collide. Yeah, this is a rise up monotone community. <laughs> Tell me, Cole and the listeners, why why are you the Radiohead guy? Why Why did you want to do Radiohead? Tell me about Radiohead in your life. Give us the give us the spiel. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure I'm the right person. There's so many people that love. There are men on the internet that will fight you. Oh, I know. For this, but... I'm, I'm very scared to be honest because <laughs> yeah, you you elected me to do this very big episode. It's a, it's a privilege, but it's also very very intimidating. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, my obsession, I guess, goes back to I guess OK Computer, but as we'll probably talk about, Kid A was what really really had me falling in love with Radiohead to the point where I was obsessive. Um, I've been a lifelong musician. So as many musicians are around my age, Radiohead is like the pinnacle of everything you would want to do in a band, but can't because you're not as talented as them. <laughs> they take, you know, incredible risks in their music and are very experimental and very musically adept, but it's always accessible, which I think is one of the hardest balances to find in music. Um, and they've been able to do that throughout their career somehow while also simultaneously reinventing themselves essentially with every single record. So I think I've been probably, I would say more than any other band or artist, Radiohead is inspired. Just how I write music, very inspired by Radiohead, how I think about music, what I think is possible in music, especially within like the restraints of pop culture. I think they're my favorite band of all time. I think they're objectively one of the best bands of all time. I mean, just to kind of give you an idea where I put them in the echelon of bands, like I think they are like our Beatles or as close as you can get um, in terms of like modern impact uh, legacy. I think we'll prove out that Radiohead will be a Beatles like, uh, I don't know, representation of now. Cool. Why don't you marry them then? (laughs) (laughs) 
I do have like the biggest cr- crush on Johnny too. Um, yeah, <laughs> musician crush. I mean, I think you just proved a point that I wanted to make, which is that I think there are in the Venn diagram of Radiohead fans, there's like four who are like, yeah, Radiohead's good. And then everyone else is like, they are the fucking second coming. <laughs> the day that, you know, played the chord and Jesus wept and, you know, this is Radiohead. Like, I will fucking fight you and your mother if you don't understand. Um, and that is why they're a perfect band's plan band. I love Radiohead, but I don't I don't think I have the same gusto and fervor as you do. Well, I'm also fulfilling like the cliche white guy in their 30s. No, I love it. Favorite love band it. is Radiohead. Favorite director is P.T. Anderson. Of course. Favorite yes. author is Cormac McCarthy. Like The yeah. bingo card, sure. babe. Yeah. <laughs> bingo. <laughs> we won. We got a prize. Um, also, you didn't mention, but because probably because you are um, humble, um, but Cole is a trained musician. I know you did that later in life, but you studied music and music theory, right? So you're the person that's going to come on here and be like arpeggio. And I'm going to be like, go on, babe, what is that? And you're going to actually explain it. Yeah, I think I'm uniquely suited only in that I started playing uh, in bands essentially when I was like 13 and played in bands for like 12 years or something. I was self-taught. And then I went to college in my mid-20s to study classical music, uh, which is not unlike Radiohead where they play quote-unquote popular music, rock music, but also are very influenced by classical music, particularly Johnny Greenwood, 20th century classical music in particular. Um, And so they kind of have that kind of same hybrid style as I guess I came into as a musician. So again, another reason why I identify with them so much. Gorgeous. Well, I can't wait to go on this journey. All right, Cole, let's let's just take it from the fucking top. Usually I'll do this part, but if you know more than me, interject. I'll also ask a couple of questions. But Radiohead, a gang of lads who met at Abingdon School in Oxfordshire, England. Just a gang of lads, gang of pals. Um, sounds like they were all kind of nerdy. I couldn't really gauge. Tom York, born October 7th, 1968, a Libra. Um famously was born, I think with one eye closed, um, had to have like five, I think, major operations on his uh, eyelid before he was even six years old. He had to wear an eye patch to school. He was, I say this to say he was mercilessly bullied. This is all setting up to um, put us into Tom York's state of mind. But he said at the age of eight years old that he knew he would be a rock star. And he decided that when he saw Brian May from Queen on TV. Which I find interesting because, and we'll get into it as we like unravel the Radiohead thing. There's no real sense to me that Radiohead makes music because they want to be famous. I think they want to be appreciated for sure. And I think I want they want to be their work to be known and their work to be connecting with people who appreciate it, but they're not rock stars or seem to in any way aspire to that would you agree yes and no because i know i know that's our understanding of them especially now uh, having seen most of their career play out right but you look i mean even researching this podcast um you go back to those early videos and it's like 
Tom especially, I feel like he was, he had some rock star in him, whether he wanted to admit it or not. And it, that was kind of the thing with them, even from day one was like, and we'll get into this, I won't step on it too much, but like Creep became this big hit and it was like for years they're trying to essentially just get as far away and removed from that song as possible because it, you know, they felt like sellouts and they weren't contained to this one song. And so I think there was always that tendency and I think that speaks to like 90s culture a lot where being a rock star was like, it was not cool to aspire to be one, but it was also very cool to be one. I don't know. It was cool to aspire to be one if you were like Oasis. They clearly wanted to be famous and they had no shame about it. You know, like... Sure. Okay, I'll agree with you, but I think this is where I get into um, amateur psychology th- theory about Tom York. I probably in the beginning it was because, like, I can imagine if you're like, you know, a small bullied kid and you're like, oh, everybody respects Brian May from Queen, you know, like rock stars get respect. Like, I'm going to fucking show you, I'm going to be a fucking rock star. And I, I can kind of see that, like, that motivation, like fueled by revenge fantasy motivation, <laughs> which I am fucking here for. And largely, I think everybody starts a band to either get girls or punish somebody else. There's really only two reasons just for men to start a band. Uh, I, there's, there's a lot of truth in that, um, yeah. especially at that young age. Like, I don't know, I guess you can like rewrite your own history, but I remember being that age and looking at people on stage and being very envious and thinking, I want to be you. As a kid, I don't know if it's anything more complicated than like, you look fucking cool and you're on stage and everyone's watching you. It's like, as a kid, like, what else do you want? I still want that now. (laughs) Um, Still four years old. Podcast us, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, hence I, I hide behind a podcast. So Tom York was in a punk band called TNT with Colin Greenwood, um, the future bassist of Radiohead, born June 26, 1969, a Gemini. When that dissolved, this is one of my favorite parts of the Radiohead lore. Tom asked Colin, he was like, okay, will you be in this new band that I'm going to form with Ed O'Brien, born April 15th, 1968, in Aries, and Phil Selway, born May 23rd, 1967, another Gemini. Now it feels like Ed O'Brien was recruited because he was hot. (laughs) He kind of looked like Morrissey and he was very tall. Um, And I feel like in the 80s, if you're going to start a band and there's a guy at your school that kind of looks like Morrissey, he is fucking hired, (laughs) bitch. I mean, and it turned out great for Ed O'Brien, but I'm just saying like that really worked for him. Handsome man. And I I loved this little detail. Phil Solway remembered it in a later interview. He said uh, Tom's very first words to him like in the band room at school were, can't you play it a bit faster? (laughs) <laughs> so like from the beginning, the yeah. man had a vision and he was going to tell you about it. Um, and then your, um, your number one man crush, Johnny Greenwood, born November 5th, 1971, a little bit younger than the rest. He is a Colin's younger brother, a Scorpio. He basically had to beg to be in the band, which is kind of interesting because he was like a musical prodigy, basically. He could play any instrument. He was just like this like freak <laughs> genius, basically. Um, but you can, you can kind of see he's also the younger brother and they're like, fuck off, you know? Right. Didn't he originally play harmonica in the band? Yeah. The band was first, we need to say was called On a Friday, perhaps in the canon of world's worst band names <laughs> that have ever existed because they, I guess, practiced on Fridays. Which like, can I just say is as of someone who also made a stupid name in high school, uh, in my high school band that was totally arbitrary and was just like as obvious of On a Friday. So my first band I was ever in was called Red Top Road. 
because there was, we were trying to think of band names and we were on the freeway and then we saw a sign that said Red Top Road. Sure. It's the I Love Lamp school of, um, of naming bands. It's either that or you do something clever with your initials. I think those are your two options in high school. Totally. Totally. <laughs> Red Top Road is funny. On a Friday, did play their first show at uh, Jericho Tavern, which was apparently the fucking hotspot in Oxford in 1987 and Johnny was like basically just showed up with his harmonica and sat on the side of the stage waiting for like any opportunity to just play a few bars on the harmons which is really cute we should note um because I think it's important it'll come into play later I think a big part of the story of Radiohead um maybe not so much of interest to you Cole but I think of interest to me and and definitely I think uh important to mention is how they're perceived specifically by the media. And Oxford is a posh, posh place. It's a posh part of uh, the UK. It has two uh, of the like big, most fancy schools there, Oxford and Cambridge. There's a lot of money there. Tom York insisted that they were like firmly middle class, the members of the band. Their school was a private school. Um, But I think like the perception of a band from Oxford was that they were like fancy and they were very educated because, you know, they went to this private school and we'll, we'll talk about it, but they turned down a record deal to go to college. <laughs> Which is, when I read that, I didn't know that. How insane is that? How impossible is that? I know. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting because like from the beginning, you see that this like streak of wanting to make their own decisions, like kind of at all costs is there, which is really cool. But then sometimes it's not there and we'll get into around Creep. I think I think there was like a little um, confusion that happened around Pablo Honey and Creep, which you can't blame them because they got famous so fast where there was like, there was probably some decisions they'd like to take back right, right. Um, involving hair extensions and stuff, but we'll get into that. <laughs> I, did a, I did task a, a British reply guy from Twitter to tell me what Oxford was like. Uh, shout out Chris Hidden. He said, I'd say it's predominantly middle to upper middle class. It's like central southern London. So automatically there's a level of wealth there compared to the other generally more northern parts of the country. Uh, He mentions the universities and he says that brings an influx of wealth and privilege as well. I mean, you've seen it, Cole, and we'll get into it. Like they get a lot of flack for being purposely obtuse or like opaque rather and like overcomplicating things, being too intellectual too serious, overly serious, which I don't think they're overly serious at all. Like, I think they take making music seriously, but I don't think they're like overly serious as people. I don't know them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of any like comedic moments I've seen with them. All, all Most of the comedic moments that come to my head are like very unintentional. I think right. Tom York jumping into the pool on MTV oh comes to mind. We'll get into that. Yeah, I don't know if that was meant to be funny. Lighthearted is not the adjective sure. I would use. Okay, It's yeah. not the first There's, one that comes to mind about Tom York specifically and radio yeah, more generally. Nobody's like my bloody Valentine, LOLs, so lighthearted, but no one like really dragged them through the coals <laughs> for being too serious. Do you know what I mean? Right, like, right. Protect Radiohead at all costs. <laughs> okay, so we mentioned this. They got some attention for On a Friday because uh, they had made a demo. was the Manic Hedgehog demo. Is that right? Which was like named after a record store that was in in Oxford. 
Patricia Dillon says, according to your own doc, that's true. There's a lot of words on the doc, right. Dylan. I'm doing my best. <laughs> there was like other bands that were from Oxford, like Ride. And Slow Dive. And Swerve Driver. So like there are other cool bands from there. And I think the men that eventually ended up producing Radiohead's demo and being their longtime managers also produced Slow Dive, Chris Hufford and Bryce Edge. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. So they they are, have a little buzz around Oxford. Um, they are offered a record deal. Island Records. Island. That's right. Which is really cool because I think Island was, wasn't Island the, the label that also signed U2? They were like big fans of U2. And I mean... If you were in, again, in the 80s, if you were trying to be in a band in England, like, and U2's label comes to sign you and you're like, I want to go to college. (laughs) Incredible. It's unfathomable. I don't understand how anyone in high school, one person, let alone all five of them, agreeing to turn down a very significant uh, record label like that, like, I don't know. It's I didn't read. I couldn't find anything about the reasons why. I don't know if you if you found anything, but it's baffling. I it's, all I saw was that they wa- they just like didn't want to not go to college, <laughs> right. and they were like, "Well, we're gonna go to college." I didn't. Nothing really came up in interviews. So if this is incorrect, Tom York, bang my line. But like, <laughs> I don't. You know, it sounds right. Let's say yes. <laughs> so one just one tiny footnote. I think. I mean, they would basically come home from college. They don't call it college there. They're from uni. They would come home from uni on the weekends and practice. They were like, so they were very serious about their band. So Tom York in 1991 performed in this like experimental sound performance called Flicker Noise, which was composed by John Mathias and Simon Shackleton, who put on this thing called um, the Exeter Contemporary Music Festival. <laughs> Did you know this? I did not know that actually. Just know he was dabbling in experimental music way back then. That's called foreshadowing, babe. <laughs> yeah. So in 1991, they moved back because they all they all graduate except for Johnny, who I think just ends up dropping out because he's younger than them. They are seen at Jericho Tavern again. The fucking Roxy, the Sunset Strip <laughs> right. of, the, of Oxford. And Chris Hufford, uh, who I mentioned earlier, um, owned a studio called Courtyard Studios and he and his partner, um, who had been in this band, who was actually like signed to a major called Aerial FX, uh, they produced Radiohead's demo because they had seen them play and they ended up managing them. And Colin, shout out Colin, was working at a record store called Our Price. Um, and he gave that demo to Keith Wozencroft. Shout out the Woz. I hope people called him that. If they didn't, that's a missed <laughs> opportunity. Um, who was like a sales rep for EMI, which is why he was coming into the record store, but he was just moving to be an A&R. And so he got that tape and he was like, oh, I love them. But I thought this was interesting. I don't know if you saw this in your personal research, Cole. And once again, thank you for doing your own personal research. Something happened. Like th- there was just a buzz around them automatically because... Once, like, I guess EMI came to see them play at their next Jericho Tavern show. There's one place in Oxford that <laughs> play shows. 
but every other like major label was right, also yeah. there, <laughs> like waiting to be like, let's do this. Um, but apparently Keith, the Waz, he had uh, convinced his boss, Nick Gatfield, fun fact, the former saxophone player of Dexie's Midnight Runners. Come on. And they made a really good offer. And also Parlophone, which is the subsidiary that they ended up being on. That was the Beatles label, right? And they owned Abbey Road. Right. Yes. Okay. So Parlophone signed the Beatles in 1962 and they owned Abbey Road. And um, they were also the label of Pink Floyd, which Pink Floyd comes up a bunch later. Radiohead did not actually like Pink Floyd, but Tom York said in a later interview that he loved that Pink Floyd was allowed to do whatever the fuck they wanted, which is true. Right. And that he he ascribed that to Parlophone supporting them. So they were like down to sign with Parlophone. Parlophone's a funny word, isn't it? <laughs> It is. It just sounds like an old timey fax machine or something. The fact that Radiohead had played eight shows, I right. presume all at Jericho's Tavern <laughs> and got a major label record deal to me is so insane. It is looking back, but kind of being in that world a little bit around that time, a little bit later than Radiohead, but being in bands, right? it's kind of a common scenario. I mean, obviously all this takes place in LA uh, in the States, but I remember just even in my high school band, it was like, that was always, always the goal was like, we need to get to a point where we can go to LA and showcase like these, right. these showcase shows that would happen. And I feel like, especially back then, if you got the attention of one, it was such a small circle that it was just, then you had the attention of everyone. Right. Because totally, they didn't want to miss out. Yeah, exactly. And th this was also the era, at least what I remember of like, I mean, it was obviously difficult to get a record deal, but I don't think it was anything like today. Uh, the difficulty, I remember, I mean, even like three or four of the bands that I came up with just here in Sacramento, uh, where I live, like got signed to major labels and wow. nothing ever really came of it. Like, they, But it was just like, the labels wanted to get claim. You know, they just wanted to be signing as many people as possible. Totally. Essentially low risk. I don't think they're obligated to fulfill the full contract they end up signing, but also, you know, they have them if they are successful for that, that amount of albums. So, you know, when Radiohead gets signed, it's a six album recording deal, which kind of is crazy now. I'm not sure they are that long these days. Totally. Yeah. It's just such a, I mean, we talk about it ad nauseum on the show, but it's like remembering that like the mid eighties to the mid nineties, or mid to late nineties was like the most fruitful right. period for the music industry. And they were rich as fuck. So like right. they had plenty of money to go sign whoever the fuck from Jericho's Tavern. And it doesn't even matter if like nothing happens with it right. because who cares? We have so much money. And for every five Jericho's Tavern bands that one of them is going to be Radiohead and make you super rich. You it's know? just a numbers game. Yeah. What if five bands from Jericho's Tavern did get signed? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> I want to go to Jericho's Tavern. I wonder if it's still there. They did change their name. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. Spoiler alert. They changed their <laughs> name. Um, I think they were besieged by many people. Please do not have this as your name. And they chose Radiohead, which is the Talking Head song off the fantastic album, True Stories, uh, produced by Brian Eno, foreshadowing. Because Talking Heads were a major inspiration for them, along with the Smiths. R.E.M. And 
the Pixies. And then also, and I'm sure Cole, you saw this, Tom York was like radicalized basically by Elvis Costello and the attractions, the one album, Blood and Chocolate. Okay. Have you ever listened to that album? Are you an Elvis Costello guy? Not really. Very interesting for my armchair psychology. Okay. Because it's a great album. Elvis Costello is a goddamn genius, but that album in particular is like the most vengeful album because it was like a post-divorce album. Mm. And it's just like the vitriol in these songs about a person and just like, it's really good. And it's like the vocals are kind of very crazy and upfront. The fact that Tom York was so inspired (laughs) by an album of punishment, (laughs) just saying, I'm just saying. And I think I saw that he really loved Hatful of Hollow, which is a goddamn all-time Smiths album. Not that they put out that many albums, but... That one, just banger after banger. William, it was really nothing, babe. So many good songs. This is the last thing I'm going to read here. This is from a later article, but... <laughs> Someone said this in an article. I can't remember who I'm so sorry. It's, it was an, oh, Stephen Dalton in Uncut. Radiohead don't look like rock stars. More like Edwardian grave robbers, pre-Raphaelite laudanum addicts, Dickensian consumptives, or World War I flying aces. He's not wrong. It is a strange lot. Yeah. Especially the assembly of them is, I mean, you have like Tom obviously looks a little weird. Johnny looks like an alien. Same with his brother, Colin. And then you have like, you know, Phil's like middle-aged. Phil's just a normal bloke. Just a normal bloke at the pub. <laughs> Jericho's Tavern. He's sitting there. Hello. He came for the football match. His shirt's always tucked in. Yeah. And then Ed O'Brien's hot. And Colin. <laughs> Ed O'Brien's like six foot five. And Tom York is five seven. It's such, which a, is an- it's such a weird <laughs> assembly of people. It, it, like yeah. there's no... All their promo photos just look so awkward and strange always to this day it's just it's just a, it's just such a strange assortment of people yeah it's real british right. i must say also i'm just going to say tom york got the fucking raw end of this deal because if he and his band i mean if he and his band had come out 10 years later probably they wouldn't be rich and successful um because of many reasons um including the fall of the music industry but if they had come out 10 years later he would have been considered extremely hot cuz he has that perfect like like emo boy mm. like i'd love to save you rescue you <laughs> vibe he's hot he really got fucked i have to say Producer Dylan says, Cole is like, why am I here? Why did I agree to this podcast? This podcast covers all the territory, including aesthetics. No, I love And it. hotness. Love it's it. actually mostly about hotness and then 10% about arpeggios. Okay. <laughs> so I thought it was cool. I mean, again, this is like to back up what you were saying about like how different the music industry was then. Also, probably particularly in the UK and England because it's so small. Right. And also they're so they're so, at that time especially, so big on rock music. You know, that was like the bread and butter of fucking music in England. They were so into it. There's 18,000 music magazines in like one square mile. So Melody Maker in 92 wrote them up, like even before they had put, I think, anything out in February of 1992 because they didn't even put out 
their first EP uh, until May of 1992. I'm just saying. The Streets was watching. <laughs> well, we don't have to talk much about Drill, the EP, only to say that there's four songs on it. Three of them ended up on Pablo Honey. The only one that's not is that song, Stupid Car. And two of the songs were on the original demo. Did you listen to the OG on a Friday demo? I didn't. It's interesting. It like really jumps all over the place. Like there's some like real U2 core. And then like, you know, it's just like listening to that and then coming back to what Radiohead became, you really see like, wow, like this is like, there was always something good there. Like there's like a song called Fragile Friend that's pretty good. And then Everybody Knows, which I feel is a very U2 song. But wow, like the amount that they like grew in such a short time is really crazy. Yeah, I think I'll definitely have a lot of thoughts on the Pablo Honey specifically about that. Because when you do return to the early work, it's... In my mind, there's not a lot of like seeds there to predict whatsoever what became mm, of them. Interesting. Interesting. Like for me, there's not much differentiation between early Radiohead and kind of what was generally going on at the time. Um, aside from like Tom's voice, which totally. obviously is always kind of the standout, uh, just the quality of the voice and obviously kind of a natural gift for melody. Yeah, totally. In terms of musically, like you look back and it's um, it's definitely not clear the amount of talent that was in the band, especially knowing what happened, you know, in subsequent years. And again, it's like, it's, there wasn't, there wasn't much differentiation between them and everyone else. Let's just for the goddamn record, make it clear that I am a Pablo Honey apologist. Are you? I love Pablo Honey. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Okay. We'll get into it. Um, real quick. I just have to mention before the, cause creep came out as a single before the album came out before the creep single comes out. Radiohead does go on tour um, supporting Kingmaker. They went on before a juggler. <laughs> That's all. Just an intervention. It's kind of like when I was doing stand-up comedy. We don't need to talk about it. but um, And I had to do a show with um, both a man who did comedy with a guitar and then also a man who did comedy with a puppet. And that's when I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> okay. So Creep comes out as a single in September of 1992. It is produced by Paul Coldery and Sean Slade, two motherfucking kings, if you don't know, from Boston. They were the founders of the iconic studio of Fort Apache. They produced the Pixies, which again, we said Radio has a big fan, Dinosaur Jr., fucking Buffalo Tom Babe. Shout out Buffalo Tom. There's five songs on here. Shall we just, let's get it out of the way. Creep, goddamn gorgeous beautiful fucking song. And by get it out of the way, I mean, bring it on. I've listened to it a hundred times in this past week in prepping and I'm still not tired of it. I've probably heard it two million times in my life. It's a great song. It's a great song. I don't care what anyone says. Tom York, (laughs) I don't care what you say, babe. It is a great song. That's right. Your skin. Makes me cry. That's what I aspire to in my skincare routine. But I'm a creep. 
Cole, besides this man's fucking angelic heavenly voice. Is there something about the construction of this song or anything that you think makes it so good or makes it so earwormy or makes it so like just stuck in your head compelling? Yes, definitely. Um, So I think of all the songs on Pablo Honey, Creep, ironically, because they came to despise this song so much, I think foreshadows what would become Radiohead the most. Um, I don't want to give them too much credit on the chord progression because I'm sure as you read, they kind of lifted it from uh, the Holly, uh, Holly song. the air that I breathe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is, is like a direct ripoff. To be fair to him, he wrote it like 1987, I think. So he was like still young and they kind of had this song just kind of lying around and it kind of spontaneously came up in between sessions in the studio, which is also ironic because it ends up like becoming obviously their biggest hit and they can never outlive it. Yeah. But like specifically the chord progression to me is super interesting. I'm going to really try to like keep this as quick as possible because I can go on like <laughs> these huge music theory challenges. But essentially it's in this, like in a key G major, there's only four chords, a four chord progression that repeats literally the entire song. So there's like, it just repeats over and over and over. But within the four chords, two of them are what are called borrowed chords, which are chords that are not in the key signature that they're in. So I can even just play them right now. So it starts with uh, G major, which is like the home chord. We call it the tonic chord, which is like the chord of resolution. If you're in G major, nine times out of ten, your G major is going to be the first chord that you hear in the song. The second chord is a B major. It's a borrowed chord, so it doesn't technically belong in the key signature. And it leads us to where we wanted to go is E minor. But instead they play C major. So it's a little like kind of clever. And then the last chord is a C minor, and it's another borrowed chord. So what's cool about this, and what I find super fascinating, is that when Tom says, I don't belong here, here. he's singing over this minor four chord. So he's saying, I don't belong over a chord that doesn't belong. And then when he says the actual word belong, he hits a note that doesn't belong wow. in the key signature. Wow. So he's singing a note that doesn't belong. That note right there is where he sings belong, and it, it's a B flat, doesn't belong in the key signature, over a chord that also doesn't belong in the key signature. So this is what we call text painting. That's the kind of stuff I think is really cool. Okay, I have two questions. Number one, were any of those the secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Hallelujah does use the same uh, borrowed minor four chord. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. Oh, so that we figured it out. That's, that's the chord. <laughs> it's actually that David the secret chord. Yeah. The Lord. <laughs> you guys, we've done some fucking investigative <laughs> journalism on this podcast. Okay, my second question is do you think that was on purpose? The sending the message through the the chord that doesn't belong here while saying I don't belong here. This is okay. So this is like a very interesting musical philosoph- philosophical conversation because one, 
We don't know. I was, if I were to guess, probably not. I would say it's probably more intuitive than anything. Mm. Yeah, that's just God, babe. And my, <laughs> and my question is like, does it matter? Like it's there, it fits, does it matter? And then with someone like Radiohead, especially, who has shown that they actually actively think about maybe not this and maybe not this early, but in subsequent albums, you know, they're doing all sorts of Easter egg, cool stuff. Totally. So it's like, with someone like Radiohead, I might give them more of the benefit of the doubt than others where it might be just intuitive or accidental. But this is like, the, this to me is like the magic of music, these, these kind of moments. And it's like, maybe you can't point specifically to like, oh, that's why the song is popular. But I don't know, there's a, there's, you know, something indescribable and transcendent about a song like Creep. Totally, yeah. It's lasted this long. It's aged beautifully. As much as they might hate it, which maybe has changed over the years, it's stood the test of time. And to me, like these small details all kind of add up to like, why is this song good? Why does what he's saying resonate so accurately and emotionally with us? It's like, to me, like these kind of things don't fully explain it, but they help to explain like the mystery of like a song like this. Totally. That's very cool. There's a couple of things that I think not just rescue this song from just being like melodramatic fucking slush, you know, that that I just learned right now. And classically, you know, as the story goes, Johnny did not like the song. They did not like this. I mean, even from the beginning, I think they were just trying to play the song because they were kind of stuck in the studio and they had this song, which they called their Scott Walker song, which is kind of funny because Scott Walker does make sort of not as catchy, but similar music. Mm. And they were just trying to like, kind of like, you know, I can loosen up or whatever. And they right, played right. the song and Johnny hated it. And so he tried to ruin it with that fucking iconic. <laughs> like, which is like absolutely makes the song. Right. And as well as famously pointed out by scholars of our time, Beavis and Butthead. Better start rocking or I'll really give them something to cry about. <laughs> Shut up, buddy. It gets cool. Check it out. Check it out. Here it comes. <laughs> but I'm a- yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. How it goes from this like beautiful thing into like, you know, like the like heavy crunchiness of the guitars that come in. It fucking slays. (laughs) And it adds this like, I don't know, because it's both plaintive and menacing, you know, (laughs) like it's not, it's not delivered straight. And I think it's, that's the thing that makes it so compelling you know it's also perfect like what a way to introduce these you know assembly of creeps like (laughs) you just look at them and it's like you know the first thing the first thing we hear out of tom's mouth is i'm a creep and you like look at his face and you know it's a little creepy sure so i don't know it's just like a very fitting introduction to radiohead totally aesthetically i do agree like the chorus is so big it's executed so well and it's like uh the mileage they get out of that chord progression too is like pretty amazing because the song has a, like a lot of dynamic range way more dynamic range than anything else on, on Pablo Honey which is my main complaint about that album is that it's just one note the like one dynamic the entire time uh, where Creep kind of goes a lot of places in a short amount of time what I thought was really interesting was like the piano that comes in and only at the end was an accident like they forgot to mix in the piano until the very end and so it just remained 
And also, we didn't even mention, Creep was recorded in one take Mm -hmm. on the first take. Like, what? Insane. What? And then famously, Sean uh, Slade walked out of the studio and was like, too bad their best song's a cover because he literally misunderstood and thought it was a Scott Walker song (laughs) and thought that they couldn't (laughs) release it. Like, think about, like... Bill Simmons on his podcast, I'm going to steal it from him. He always asks, like, what if? Like, the greatest what ifs of history. Like, mm. to me, this is, like, one of the biggest what if moments of music history. What if they didn't randomly show their producers this song? Where is Radiohead now? You know? It's like a, a sliding doors kind Love of... Love sliding. Shout out Gwyneth Paltrow, gorgeous movie. <laughs> no, totally. Because I think a lot of what... Radiohead has accomplished has been the result of absolutely, of course, their artistry and desire and drive and motivation, but also the immense goodwill that they built up from one having a huge hit song, which like they had to make Pablo Honey in three weeks or something, right? Which, to your point, is probably why it's not known as one of their best albums. Um, and they were like kids and they were just like, right, you know, they're yeah, like yeah. in their early 20s. Inexperienced. Yeah. yeah. Whereas they got like a much longer period to make the bends and then longer and longer. You know, they, they had more and more right. leeway and freedom as they went on. But, you know, on the flip side of that, and I think Tom York talks a lot about this, about why he hates Creep. It's partially probably because the song is kind of reductive of like what kind of artists they are. And also like it is as you know, juxtaposed with later Radiohead, uh, lyrically extremely sincere, right? which isn't a thing that sticks around too much further than the bends. Yeah. But, you know, you make a fucking hit song that big, often it ruins your career because we're going to talk about it endlessly. You can't escape the shadow of it. You've basically promised people this. And if you don't make that again, they're mad. But if you make that again, they don't probably want it because they already had one. You know, like... Yeah. All the all the kind of cards were there for them to be a one-hit wonder. Like, it's all there. I think nine times out of ten, that's what happens in this scenario, is that pressure mounts, expectations, dealing with fame at a young, you know, relatively young age and very fast, and also not being proud of the work. Right, that they're putting forward. That's just such a cocktail. It's hard enough to keep a band together, like, a year, let alone many years. So I think... Yeah, again, it's like another what if moment because more often than not, you know, a band like Radiohead with this first album, this first hit just kind of deteriorates, never lives up to the first rise and kind of just fades over time. And we remember them as, oh, that one band that had that one song. Like how many bands, you know, how many bands are there like that from this era? There's a ton of them. Ton. We're not, we won't show. Shout out Toadies. I have a counter argument. I think that putting out Creep in the time that it was put out earned them the legion of devoted teenage fans, right? Who then were willing to give the Benz time. Because the Benz does not strike you the way Creep does, right? It takes a right. little more work. And if you didn't have the investment of the Creep people, it might have come and gone, even though it's a fucking brilliant record, you know? Right. And I think that's really important. 
Yes, the creep people, myself included, and all the <laughs> incels who love Radiohead. Shout out to the incel community. Before we move on from creep and get into Pablo Honey, to your point about the air that I breathe, which is actually originally written by uh, Albert Hammond, father of Albert Hammond Jr. from The Strokes, and Mike Hazelwood, they did receive co-writing credits yeah. on yeah, it. Yeah. And they, I guess they were very nice about it. They said that Radiohead was very honest about having reused the composition. And so they agreed to take only a little piece of the money and they noticed it right away. Ed O'Brien pointed it out, which I mean, shout out to him for being like, that sounds like the air that I breathe. Something crazy. I mean, we jumped ahead to this being the biggest song ever. This was not the biggest song ever right? Yeah. at first. Like in the UK, fucking tanked, babe. Didn't even hit the top 75. Ra- BBC Radio 1 was like, this song is too depressing. Would not play it which is kind of crazy. In 1992 though, this is right before Tom York started, I think, to hate the song because it wasn't big yet, but he said to NME, that song will always be there. And in five, six, 10 years time, people will be saying that Creep is a fucking classic record. We know that. So I'm mm. just saying yeah. the lady doth protest too much because I think he <laughs> knew it was a fucking banger from day one. He just didn't like what it did to him. I think we have a sort of manic, um, a pathological, uh, I mean, almost to the point of extreme unhealthiness, really, uh, of thinking everything we do is shit all the time. It's very Tom York to, like, whatever the scenario, he's going to push back. So if, like, right. Creep doesn't blow up, then he's pissed. And then when it does <laughs> blow up, he's pissed. Uh, it's very, Who can relate? It's very Tom York. Yeah. Shout out my king. Shout out my ordinary king. <laughs> Q Magazine called them as imageless as a police identity parade. Uh, in American English, that's like a police lineup. I thought that was funny. That's amazing. Yeah, that that is a big thing about Radiohead. Although now looking back, I thought they looked fucking cool. But Yeah, they do. Yeah. It aged way better than I remember. Yeah. But I think everything from the 90s looks cool. It's my, my God-given right to say that. <laughs> so they don't... They, again, nothing's really happening. Here's what fucking happened, guys. Are you ready? Strap in. Toward the end of 1992, an Israeli DJ named DJ Yov Kutner played Creep a bunch on Israeli radio, particularly an Israeli army radio station called, I think, Galai Hazal. He had been introduced to the song by an EMI rep. It becomes a huge hit in Israel. Huge, massive. The first show radio had ever played outside of England was in Israel, which they were treated like the fucking Rolling Stones. Suddenly you found out that you're very famous and very popular in the Middle East, in Israel. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was weird. Um, maybe we've tapped a nerve or something, I don't know, but uh, we, we'll just go anywhere we want, anywhere that people want us, really. So. Then they had to come back and play the Jericho Tavern. Then, in America, now we're in America, <laughs> Berkeley, <laughs> California, in fact, there's a record store called Maud Lang. There is an employee named Aaron Axelson. He brings the Live 105 DJ, Steve Masters. Live 105, KITS, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose. Steve Masters with the new music challenge. Import copies of the new Radiohead single, Creep. And that guy is like, you know what? I like this song. Starts playing it. That would be important-ish. No shade to Live 105. But because of this, I'm just presuming that alt radio stations pay attention to each other. One K-Rock. K-R-O-Q-F-M, rock of the 90s. Does start programming it quite soon after this. And then it's over for these hoes, babe. They get an American radio deal. K-Rock starts playing it. It is, they're massive. It gets in the MTV buzz bin. 
it's over. Huge. Yeah, it was like unavoidable, right? I mean, we remember it for a reason. It's like ingrained in when you think 90s, it's just, it's in the tier of like smells like teen spirit to me. I don't know if that's blasphemous for some. No, I think that's totally true. It's one of the most, I think, iconic songs of the 90s, especially the early 90s. I mean, it's perfect. It encapsulates so much of what I remember of that era. Even what I was feeling at the time too. I mean, I was like a skater kid. Like You were feeling that you didn't. You didn't belong here. Much like Radiohead coming from like middle class, I was like also middle class suburb kid, also a skater that, you know, wanted to be an outcast more than he was an outcast, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, I was ugly, Cole. So <laughs> I 1000% related to this song. Me scream singing in my house. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing <laughs> Gorgeous. So Pablo Honey comes out finally. There's some crazy press that Radiohead do around this time. We won't talk about it. We'll just say that Tom York did have hair extensions. He's a bleach blonde. <laughs> um, he did do an iceberg jeans ad in which oh my God, he is a model. Too. That's yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah, I'll send it to you. You can find it on the internet. There's a show review just right before we get to Pablo Honey coming out. There's a show review in NME in December of 1992 by one Keith Cameron where he says, were I an A&R type, I'd say something terminally crass, like sack the band, give the singer a publishing deal. Mm. As things stand, however, Radiohead are a pitiful, lily-livered excuse for a rock and roll group. I wonder if he stands by this. If he was the A&R and he had dumped them. Yeah, I don't know. If I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. No, but you're right. I mean, based on the body of work of Pablo, I I kind of understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy to look back and say, oh, you're wrong, but also... If you think about Pablo Honey, at least in the way I do, I can see maybe someone, I wouldn't be as harsh as that, but I can see one maybe thinking in those terms. <sighs> Let's get into Pablo Honey. I, I love Pablo Honey. You do? Okay. I, I'm really interested to hear why. It's not rocket science why I love Pablo Honey. Pablo Honey is a gin blossoms album. <laughs> it just is. Like it's right. eight tenths of this album could be gin. It's like... It really answers the question, what if the gin blossoms were British, you know? <laughs> and for me, I've asked that question and to have the answer delivered in Pablo Honey, gorgeous. A couple of things about Pablo Honey before I play another song. The album name came from a jerky boys bit. So for oh those goodness. of you calling them humorless and not lighthearted, right. come on. Um, they loved fucking the jerky boys. There's also, I think, um, one of the sketches. It's like hidden on one of the, the songs, right? Yeah, it's in... How Do You, the third song. Yeah. Tom said something interesting much later in an interview that I wanted to read to you. He said, when people rip each other off but don't add anything original to the equation, it's painful because you can hear the anxiety of the creator wanting to be loved. Mm. I'm not going to say any names, but you know what I'm on about. That desire to be loved rather than fuck you, this is all I got. And the interviewer goes... Were you like that when Radiohead began? And he goes, that's how everybody starts out. Everybody goes through that period of imitating other things because you're worried you want to be liked. Everybody does it. It's just how soon you realize that it's not very pleasant to listen to and nobody wants to hear it anyway. Uh, wow. That's so spot on. Right? It kind of validates everything I, I kind of feel about the album. Yeah. In that I kind of touched on before, but it's, you know, there's moments. I, I'm not going to totally shit on it. You know, there's moments that come through that stand out, but 
just hearing that actually makes a ton of sense. And it's it's actually really cool to see him be so transparent about it. I mean, I, I'm not going to say they listened to the Gin Blossoms because the Gin Blossoms came out later. But, right, right. But yes, it has the general alt music of the early 90s feel, which as you know, I love. The first song, some real U2 style bellowing on there from Tom. I'll take it. It was from the demo. Can I say something about this song? Because this was my f- actually favorite. About- you? Yeah, you. So this is my favorite part about the album, actually, in, in retrospect. And only because it's like a very symbolic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But so the the opening song is in 6-8 time, which is not like unheard of. It's like, okay. <laughs> uh, it's like the swing. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Like more of a swing dance waltzy type feel. Okay. But every four measures... They mysteriously, without really a reason why, cut one beat off of the fourth measure of every repetition. So it, there's one measure of five, eight, every four bars. So it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six. Hmm. So if you listen and you try to count along or like just even like snap your fingers to the to the beat, every four measures, you're going to get thrown off. And there's like just a little, it's almost like a little glitch. And there's not, to me, like a clear reason why, except that they just probably wanted to be (laughs) different and a little bit cool. And at that point, that's like kind of what they came up with. But again, like this, the symbolism of just that weird addition to what is otherwise a kind of more basic song. To me, in my mind, it's like, oh, cool. Like that's a seed. That's a seed that's going to you know, blossom as extravagantly as as possible because it's like, yeah, that's the foundation of what they came to be known for, which was very unique, experimental. Making shit weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I think here it's like weird for weird's sake. To me, it doesn't function all that. Just it kind of makes it kind of off every once in a while. Yeah. But the way that they are able to kind of cultivate that weirdness, I guess, and make it actually functional and make songs way more interesting and unpredictable. Yeah, it's just a cool symbolic moment. And it being like the first song in the first, within the first 10 seconds, there's this weird music thing happening, I think is like really cool and very fitting. That's really interesting. And we'll, I think we'll probably get into this more and more. A thing I love about Radiohead is for dumb moron idiots like me, who by the way, would never have known what you're talking about in that song. I can't even hear it, right? Because I don't listen to music that way. Like, I think when they do that stuff, it does make the song more interesting, but without making it unlistenable. Right. Do you know what I mean? Or I think like there's ways that you can like get weird in a song that other musicians will be like, cool. And then other people will be like, I don't, I hate this. <laughs> Why did you do this to this song? Whereas like, it seems like they do it in ways that never sacrifice. I mean, I'm sure some people might argue, but I don't think it ever sacrifices the listenability because that's not what they're after, right? They're after just making the song better. Right, yeah. I think that's that's why I admire them so much as a as a musician who knows that has tried, you know, writing songs and writing interesting songs. I think one of the hardest things to do in music, especially within kind of the world of what I call popular music, everyday people listen to, like finding the balance between you know, musically interesting and still accessible, I think is one of the hardest things to accomplish in music. Totally. They do it so well. That's And that's another reason why I kind of compare them to like the Beatles a lot in my head, just because the Beatles ended up doing that in their own way later in their career. 
and they kind of came in with their own versions of creep, right? Like songs that were fulfilling the sound of that day. Very good songs, but also like kind of typical for the era. And then like you alluded to, they used their audience and they kind of leveraged their audience and the attention and the time that their audience are going to be willing to give them mm. to challenge the listener, experiment without totally going overboard. And to me, that's like, I'm kind of maybe stepping on later conversations here, but that's why I think radio is so important because when you're a very popular band and you have an audience and then you start doing experimental things that most people haven't heard before, that's what pushes music forward, I think. Totally. It's a really good point. That's why I consider them like on the forefront, all of the Beatles, because what, what the Beatles did for music at that time, I feel like Radiohead did in their own era. And that we'll probably talk about a lot, like the offshoots of Radiohead where everyone was for a while trying to be Radiohead, but couldn't quite reach their level. It was all yellow. It was all yellow. You know, people were inspired to be them because they did push the genre forward. Totally. Venn diagram of men who love the Beatles and Radiohead. One circle, <laughs> solid, <laughs> a solid, gorgeous circle. Um, yes, no, yes. Yeah. Since this isn't your fave, I'll pick the song to play off of this, but I'm going to do a quick rundown on the songs. Okay. How do you? This song is very British. I will not explain further. Stop whispering. <laughs> a goddamn gorgeous, beautiful song. This is uh, the oldest one on there. It was on the demo. Thinking About You. Sorry, I fucking love that song. It's gorgeous. It's pretty. I like it. Anyone Can Play Guitar is very interesting to me because the beginning is totally different than what it becomes, which is a Gin Blossom song, which I love. <laughs> but the beginning is more challenging and kind of harder. Right. And then it gives way to Jim Blossom's song, which like, I'm like, kind of a cool trick. Ripcord. My note just says, sorry, but I love this song. I like that I'm preemptively <laughs> apologizing in my own Google Doc for sorry, but I love this song. I can't is fucking amazing. I love it. But really to me, the standout track on this album, and it's, I'm not, I don't think reinventing new ground here is Lurgy. Just stunning because the vocal performance is so beautiful. It is, yeah. And this is what's funny when I actually looked into this song more because you're like, oh, Tom York is saying things like, I feel better, I got strong. I got better, I got strong. And then he realized the song's called Lurgy, which is, uh, which is an illness, a highly <laughs> infectious disease. And that he's talking about, <laughs> he's essentially calling this past lover, I guess, Lurgy. And so it's like, even though he's positive, he's still like shitting on someone, which is very fitting for Tom York. But yeah, I mean. Totally. I feel like it's in conversation with Creep, maybe <laughs> in, in a certain way. <laughs> right, you right, know? right, right. 
It's a nice song, I guess. It's not not something I would... Okay. All right. Cool. Okay. Okay. Let's we'll keep it moving then. I think if you listen to Pablo Honey without comparing it to the rest of Radiohead's yeah. catalog, you can very much enjoy it. They go on tours, really grueling tours. This is what happens after Pablo Honey. This is a point I want to make throughout, but I'll make it now. It struck me in researching Radiohead, and I think it hadn't struck me that much before, but... The 90s were probably the best and worst time to be in a popular band because A, there was so much available to you in terms of success, but B, it was like no one toured like this before. Like advances in technology, globalization, all this stuff allowed now for you tour the whole goddamn world and you do it all year and you have to because the label makes you because you have to support your album. And also... You know, the 90s, I I would argue, and I think people would agree with me, was the peak of music journalism. Mm, There was six million music magazines and outlets and they all fucking wanted to talk to you and you had to because your label made you. Yeah, it's like, wow, wow. But also that's fucking harrowing. Especially when you're 23 years old, you know, you're you're from Oxfordshire or whatever. (laughs) And all of a sudden you're like, you know, in a bus every day and people are screaming at you and saying you are ugly and look weird, which happens in a lot of the magazines, which is insane. Right. Yeah. And I mean, this it's obviously like pre-internet, right? So the only way to get your name around was to actually travel and get your name around because totally. You know, now it's kind of like the inverse. You get your name on the internet and then you... And then, you and then you're allowed to tour. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and yeah. I also think it ties back into what we said before, which was like, these bands were cash cows. And totally. they were overworked. And exactly, yeah. How, how many times can you answer the same shitty question from the same same type of journalist in the next city every day? Like, well, it's like Groundhog's Day. And there's just... obviously worse things that you could be doing, but I mean, it, we've all traveled. We know how exhausting just traveling alone is, let alone performing and then talking to people. And yeah, one thing I always think about, just with artists in general, and especially someone like Tom York, who's not your typical like frontman. Yeah. It's like you get into music because you like playing music and you express yourself most accurately through music. Then all of a sudden people are wanting to hear what you actually have to say. They want to hear Mm -hmm. you talk, which is so different than like expressing yourself through music. I think that really challenges a lot of people where, especially when you're young and maybe don't have that much to say and everyone's starting to look at you and like this kind of like as an idol or an icon and that's a, just a weird psychological flip where you see, I mean, it's like not surprising so many, you know, huge pop stars or famous people go crazy because like the psychology of people looking at you as if what you say. Oh yeah. Fame is an illness. It's right. a disease. <laughs> and most people can't recover from it. And I think what's what was interesting returning to this information was just how fast they got jaded. You know, usually I think there's like a honeymoon period in the beginning where it's like, oh my God, we're a big band. Like our dreams are come true. And you kind of put up with some of the challenges because you've just fulfilled what I assume is a a lifelong dream. But just how instant it seemed like their kind of turmoil with this dynamic of fame, touring, expectations uh, plays a big part uh, after, you know, the creep and popular honey and, you know, just the, the weight of the pressure so early, I think it kind of changes the course of of their entire career, right? Like, again, it's like the what if moment. If if there was no creep, like, 
do we get the reaction album, the bends, right? Like a, a, it seemed like a lot of mm. what they ended up doing with their first albums was a reaction to what happened in the past, right? Like even to the point where like my iron lung is about creep. It's like, it gets meta right. really quickly. It's really meta. Totally. <laughs> and it's totally. like, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's interesting. It was interesting to, to see how quickly the shift occurred. Yeah. I, I mean, I honestly think it goes back to my original point where I think it was a be careful what you wish for moment. I think like ultimately they didn't want to be famous and ultimately they're, you know, a band of merry introverts right. who hid in the music room for all of high school or whatever. And like, they also don't party, which like right. if anyone who's been on tour, this is also why so many musicians become addicts. Like a lot of people dissociate through partying right. and they didn't do that. I mean, they drank, but like they didn't do drugs. Like they were like, and you know, I'll say another sort of controversial opinion. I think they were too smart. <laughs> I do really. I, I mean, I do. I think they were like too smart and too introverted to deal with like the dumb shit day in and day out. And also we'll get into it later. And I think it becomes very clear. like. As much as like Tom moved more and more away from being very like, how do I say this? Like extremely open and honest in his lyrics and got more opaque. He was never dishonest. And like, I think as a band, Radiohead's kind of allergic to fakeness. Mm. And there's so much fake bullshit that you have to deal with when like people are kissing your ass, the label right. saying this, the, like you said, the dumb fucking questions that don't even have an answer. Like, yeah. Oh, are you excited to like, yeah, yes, I'm fucking excited. You know, yeah, like I think the smart, them being smart, I think is a, is a really good point because yeah, they understood the charade and they understood that they were just like a chess piece being moved around where they didn't have much autonomy, where they were just like kind of puppets moving from city to city, giving journalists content. You know, they were just providing so much for everyone while like, quote unquote, getting their name out there or whatever. And it's like, yeah, at some point it's like, you're going to get the bends. You're going to get this. <laughs> totally. Yeah, you're going to get a reaction too. To all that shit. Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was cool. Their grueling tours were supporting PJ Harvey and Belly women. Yeah, that's right. It's cool. And they canceled. They're supposed to play Reading and they canceled it. First Reading appearance. They canceled it because Tom was unwell. Yeah. He was like, I can't do this. Which is, again, a kind of a crazy thing for a band to do in their first fucking time playing Reading because it's a big deal to play Reading. I just want to read a couple of the reviews of Pablo Honey before we go on to the bends. Vox gave it a five, I believe, out of 10. Oh, Keith Cameron, he's back. He didn't like them. Ultimately, Pablo Honey founders on a misconceived desire to be something rather more than the sum of its parts. Okay. The LA Times says, this English quintet's debut doesn't really deliver anything you haven't heard before, steering too close to a Smiths-like melodies and trying ever so hard to be depressed in the way the cure popularized. <laughs> Occasionally, though, it does offer clever lyrics and good hooks. And then Melody Maker said, Radiohead aren't the new Suede, but if Suede are the new Smiths, and if we must play these games, this is the music press, so I suppose we must, I'd hesitantly put Radiohead down as the new jam. I only wanted to read this to say, like, again, it was a whole different world, the British music press. Yeah. Suede was such a huge band. Suede did not make one fucking blip of an impact in America. Like, do you remember hearing a Suede song in the 90s? If, I, if I'm being totally honest, I thought, you, I thought you were talking about Suede the material. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, now I've found it. Suede is a great band, but like they were massive in the UK and like nobody fucking cared about them in America. But they were constantly, Radiohead versus Suede was like a big 
a big thing. They love to do that there. Oasis versus Blur. It's the jam in, in the right, UK. Right, right, right. Yeah. Also, sorry, so quickly before we go on. I sent this to you, but Radiohead does play the MTV Beach House. <laughs> Iconic. Don't worry. You've got an open invite to crash at our place. Stay tuned for details. Plug into MTV Summer and feel the burn. Whoever was like programming that shit was like, you know, it would be amazing. If during the MTV Beach House where everyone's in bikinis and dancing with like, you know, floaties and pool balls, we have Radiohead come <laughs> and sing the world's most depressing song. <laughs> Wouldn't that be really cool? And they do come and do that. They played, I think everyone can play guitar, which by the way, I didn't even mention, I feel is like a personal affront to me who has been... Um, trying to learn guitar for several years now. And it's hard. Actually, everyone can't play guitar. It's quite hard. At the end of the MTV Beach House performance, Tom York does jump in the pool, like you mentioned earlier, and he does uh, nearly drown. Oh, really? Allegedly, because his Doc Martens uh, filled with water and were too heavy, and he had to be pulled out. He definitely jumped in without an endgame, because I was like... (laughs) It looks cool the moment you jump in, but how do you get out of a pool like in a cool way? I mean, I guess you pray that the the video camera is not on you. That the TV but it, camera like if you watch it, if you watch it, it kind of goes away and then it comes back and he's kind of just like dog paddling around. <laughs> it's like, and then it cuts away again and then you see him and he's just on the side of the pool standing there talking to this like twelve year old kid. <laughs> it's like, so, and then yeah, the rest of the band's like on stage still rocking out. It was. It's it's perfectly weird and I love it. I it's love amazing. it so much. It, 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 like a visual, if you want a visual like explanation of the dynamics of Radiohead and pop culture, yeah. like just watch that video. Hop on understand. over to YouTube and pull that shit up. Okay, so we get to 1995. 1995, we're still in the early to mid 90s of music. So, you know, it's like Alanis Morissette, Smashing Pumpkins has put out Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Allison Chain's self-titled has come out. Bush, 16 Stone. Mm. I'm bringing these up to talk about like what alt radio sounded like right. around this time. Garbage. I'm only happy when it rains. PJ Harvey put out To Bring You My Love That Year. Great fucking album. To Pulp's different class. I wanna live like common people. I wanna do whatever common people do. So the Benz comes out in March 1995. They chose producer John Leckie. Are you a big magazine guy? Mm, not really. So they, they chose him because of his work with the band magazine mm. specifically for the album real life which is a great fucking album but he had also worked with the stone roses and xcc in the fall now, 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 
the fallout also always think of them as an interesting comparison point to Radiohead in some ways. I won't elaborate further. Uh, <laughs> that's it. Period. Go ahead and imagine <laughs> what I'm thinking. But most importantly, Nigel Godrich yeah. is the other producer on this album. Like he had done mixing and engineering before this for Susie Sue and Ride and Big Country. And he was the in-house engineer at Rack Studios where they recorded the bands. Tell me, tell me about the bands. Well, yeah, I mean, when we're, when we're thinking about the trajectory of their career, I think the leap from Pablo Honey to the Benz is extraordinary. Totally. I know that's not breaking new ground. It's like evident from the moment you press play, just the, the sound quality alone, actually having some dynamic range on most of the songs. But I think what I found most interesting, just kind of returning to it and contextualizing it, was it just was so much a reaction to Pablo Honey, even down to the title where it's like they're titling, you know, the Benz is this term for decompression sickness. And Tom saying, like, we just came up too fast. and like famous too fast, babe. I'm unwell. <laughs> I'm sick. Right. And, and I think that if we're looking at positives that might have came out of the Pablo Honey experience, and especially the tour, is like, they were kind of a band for a while, but they left for university. So I don't know how much they're actually practicing and developing during those years. We said they played eight shows before they got exactly. signed. So it's not like they were like, you know, a seasoned uh, live performing band. Right. And I think the experience on tour playing every night, I think went a long way. Play Creep. Like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the experience. Right. Play Creep again. I mean, just in terms of like, just getting reps in. Totally. You know, putting in the 10,000 hours. I think a lot of that, the polish of the bends is probably due to that. But yeah, I mean, other than that, it's it's really hard to like pinpoint exactly why from Pablo Honey to the Benz, then to OK Computer is just like, I mean, we are talking leaps and bounds of musical evolution in, a, you know, just a few years. Um, so I think, you know, first thoughts on the Benz is, is just that leap. It's just, it, yeah. it's an extraordinary kind of unexplainable leap. I think the Nigel Godrich aspect is another kind of what if moment because obviously he becomes like the quote unquote six member of Radiohead mm -hmm. a la George Martin with the Beatles where it's like, yeah, I don't know. Obviously, I think Radiohead would be going on to do big things regardless. But I think Nigel being there along the way is super critical to the point where they tried to produce, I think, in Rainbows without him and then came back to him because it Got was him. just like it's yep. the dynamics not quite there. So I think that's, that's kind of my first my first thoughts on the Benz. Totally. I think one thing which we kind of mentioned earlier, but they were given nine weeks to finish this album as opposed to like the two and a half they had for Pablo Honey. I think that added a lot because they had some time. And I think it took even more than nine weeks. I think the album almost got shelved. They did not go into making this album like good vibes. <laughs> like <Right. laughs> Going to this album, it was like, right. but I'll even make the argument. I mean, no one likes this, but I think... Radiohead music benefits greatly from Tom York's misery. And I think yeah. the misery that accumulated over the uh, tour cycle of two years of Pablo Honey gave us the bends in many ways, yeah. you know, plus the time to like release that out and work with, you know, we haven't mentioned it, but Radiohead is like maybe the most democratic band I've ever heard of. Like, yeah, they all yeah. have to agree on everything. Everything is credited to the whole band. They split the royalties equally, which is insane to me. One of the best ways, I think, to get a band to stay together, though. Right, for right. Over time. Yeah. 
they clearly have the utmost respect for each other. I mean, from what I can tell, the dynamic is like Tom is the songwriter. Johnny is the genius. Although Johnny writes some songs too. And everyone else like brings something to each song to the table, like works on it, brings apart, whatever. But um, that's like the vibe. Tom York also said that they very quickly uh, banned all the A&Rs and management from the studio because they would just come in and be annoying and be like, where's the hits? And they were like, you can't come in here anymore. And they like pulled out the phones and they kind of got rid of that anxiety and like had a lot of more choice. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that yeah, particularly early on in the sessions, there was so much pressure. That's obviously not great, but also right. them like, apparently reworking so many of the songs, not thinking it's good enough, trying different arrangements of particular songs, which in my ears is a total kind of shift from Pablo Honey, where it feels like, you know, everyone's like a lot of the time they're just playing the same guitar parts. You know, all three of them are playing the exact same guitar parts. Right. Three guitars. Yeah, <laughs> while playing this, yeah, same chords. So I think the pressure, while obviously awful and probably very anxiety-inducing, probably helped because I don't know if they rework some of these songs to the point that they ended up doing without that pressure, but then also making it a very definitive kind of effort to, you know, midway through or whatever it was to say, okay, no, actually, we're just going to do what we want to do, which was of course, the right decision. Totally. I think also they were having a lot of problems, I think, getting the songs to work and stuff in the studio. And they end up leaving the studio to go on tour and play the songs live and work them out that way. And then they came back and like finished the album in like two weeks, Yeah, which I think is a thing that they started doing a lot later. It's like, it sounds like Radiohead often needs to work out songs while playing them together live. Right. Which is, very interesting. Kind of goes back to the Pablo thing, like, right? Like not being so experienced and then kind of finding their pocket together on tour in real time. I think maybe, maybe that informs some of that. I feel like at this point, everyone started to kind of solidify the roles that you just laid right. out. I think was very accurate kind of prognosis of their roles. Because yeah, like for me, like one of the biggest things aside from like Tom York, I think really improving as a songwriter is like this album to me is Johnny's moment. Like you really start to feel his voice. And to me, so much of Radiohead is Johnny's voice through the music, obviously. But, you know, we're getting like very unusual chord progressions at this point. He's starting to get into his like weird modal, like harmonies and riffs and guitar solos. And a lot of the stuff that sound like, if you don't like have musical training, you said like, that sounds like Radiohead. Like there's reasons for that. There's technical reasons for that. And I think a lot of that has to do with Johnny's impression and him like, you know, really honing his guitar sound to like where we can hear a song like Just and be like, that's Johnny. Like he became one of those guitarists on this album where it's like you hear the guitar and you know that's Johnny Greenwood. Like he became one of those guitarists. And so I think musically, that's one big thing that jumps out. I would say another thing is like, dynamic range they really worked that out i think ed said something to the point of like we realized that you know if the song sounded great with just tom we're not going to try to like just add stuff to add stuff right Right. so it's there's a lot of like air and breath on this album where again pablo honey was like just they're just strumming distorted guitars and there's not really much differentiation between the roles where now it's like yeah i think 
they establish the roles that become the roles for the, the rest of their career. And so I feel like, yeah, this is like, this is kind of their, I don't know, coming of age album, I guess, so to speak, where they really kind of find themselves individually and as a collective. I mean, well put, Pim. Then you can explain to us a bit about how we hear that and just goddamn gorgeous, beautiful song. Oh my God. It is amazing. So good. Because this is Johnny's song. Like he wrote the chord progression for this song. Apparently, I didn't know this. It came out of a competition that him and Tom had about who can use the most amount of chords in a song. Fucking nerds. I know. <laughs> well, obviously, Johnny wins that battle every time. There's a total of 15 chords in the song, which is insane. There's too much to go into. But one thing I, I, I do want... <laughs> Bust out the piano, man. <laughs> I do want to nerd out. I'm, I'm busting out right now. Is Okay, so that iconic ascending guitar riff in the beginning... So why that sounds so unique and like identifiable is that he's using a scale. So usually scales are like, you'll recognize this. Yeah, do, re, mi, fa, so, exactly. la, do. I know that's So like good. half the songs you hear are in that major scale. The other half are going to in a minor scale. So nine times out of 10, even maybe more than that, like songs are going to use those scales pretty much like exclusively. Okay. So what Johnny's doing here, and the chords are fucking wild and don't make sense and are perfect, but the scale specifically that he's using for that ascending guitar part is what's called an octatonic scale. Mm. There's this French composer, Olivier Messiaen, that Johnny was obsessed with. It really informs like Kid A, some of OK Computer, but like Kid A is when he, Johnny really starts to get into his Olivier Messiaen bag, which is a French 20th century composer. And he develop these what are called modes of limited transposition. Mm. And essentially, they're just these kind of weird, nerdy scales. And so this scale, the octatonic scale, sounds like this. Like, just kind of weird. Okay, okay. So essentially, all he's doing is go is using this scale, but just kind of spacing out the notes. So he used like the whole scale, and that's why there's 15 chords? It doesn't really so much have to do with this, the chords more than Got just it. the guitar riff. Okay. So like it's just. Oh. So you just use up and up and up the same scale. But I point that out just to kind of showcase what he does a lot, which is using these really like established, but like very unconventional music, I guess, tools that you would learn in like, college or, or studying like classical composition, sure. specifically 20th century music, which was kind of very experimental, atonal stuff. And it works. That's the important part, right? It's like, it's one thing to like nerd out and be like, I'm going to use Olivia Messiaen mode of limited transportation in a song. And it's like, just sounds, you know, weird and doesn't work, especially not in a pop song. But to have it in a song like Just that you don't need a musical explanation to know it's good. It's just a fucking good song. But then you know, to have these little kind of very unique characteristics and be able to point to them and say, that sounds like Radiohead. Like, that's where I feel like the Benz is like a very good representation of like Radiohead finding themselves because this is where we can point to them and they have a very unique sound that kind of carries with them throughout their entire career. And we can point to a song like Just and say, oh, 
it starts here, like very definitively starts here. That's actually really interesting, I must say, even though my feeble brain can only understand part of it. <laughs> I want to play the game where I play a song also, but I want to play Fake Plastic Trees. Is that allowed? <laughs> oh my God. This song is so good. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Clueless. Shout out Clueless movie. Uh, the maudlin music of the university station. Wow, wow, wow. What is it about college and crybaby music? Oh my God. Yeah. I was raised on Clueless. Me too. I told producer Dylan that I am the sad college granola stepbrother in the movie. Cause he's, remember he's <laughs> listening it to, to it in the car and she's like, "Ugh, I can't stand your college rock. It's so depressing. <laughs> is that, is that Paul Rudd's character? Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. I always identified with the skater stoner guy. What was that? Oh, guy's sure. Name? Love him. Breckenmeyer is his real name. I can't okay. remember his name in the movie. Yeah. He draws Marvin the Martian. Or she draws Marvin the Martian. Can't remember. They both draw Marvin the Martian. Anyways, fake plastic trees. I fucking love the goddamn gorgeous, beautiful song. Yeah. It's so, it makes me cry every time or makes me want to cry at least. It's so good. Okay. So I just like kind of like laid out what I think, you know, just is kind of like this coming of age moment for Johnny. You can point to this song as Tom's maybe in a way, Mm. or at least make a case for it. One thing I read, I didn't know, like Tom, he saw Jeff Buckley. Yes, that night he saw Jeff Buckley play. And then was inspired to use falsetto. And then I went back to Pablo Honey. I was like, oh, Tom York came to be known for his falsetto voice. But you realize he's not actually using it in Pablo Honey. That alone, I feel like is so huge. Literally, what a fucking cunt that he can just, <laughs> he can sing in any place in the ring. Like he, his voice is incredible, which we'll get to later when he sings in like 17 different ways. Right. Like he sings a different way on every song because he just can and he wants it to be interesting. I hate him. <laughs> it's not fair. It's like finding a new instrument. Yeah, it's, it's like picking up a new color or something. Like it's it's such a transformative little nugget, I think, of just, of him getting inspired enough to use his falsetto voice and maybe being comfortable enough to use it on a song and record it. I think that allows, at least in my mind, like, yeah, it is a new instrument. It allows the songs to go in much more dynamic places. Mm-hmm. I think Fake Plastic Trees, for me, why I look at it as like a very pivotal song as well. Is it's like an odyssey. You don't think about it in those terms because it's such an intimate song. But from start to finish, like it... It's it's a huge emotional and musical arc. It starts very soft. The green plastic watering can. And then the chorus somehow gets even softer. And then each subsequent verse is louder and louder. Yeah, you saw me raise my arms and wants to do surgery. And so you get these like grand moments in what is essentially a very intimate ballad. They didn't have that talent with Pablo Honey. Right. They didn't really understand how to develop a song in this way. And I think a lot of that speaks to what Ed said about, you know, if the song sounded good with Tom alone, why are we going to add anything? And so there's there's an intimacy to fake plastic trees that there is not a song anywhere near this level on Pablo Honey in terms of intimacy, dynamic arc, musical arc. Interesting that you would say that. I find 
fake plastic trees to be very much an extension of Creep. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, that's the only song you can point to, I think. Because it's very much the Pixies thing, right? We haven't talked about that. But the Pixies changed music also, and they don't get enough credit. But this loud, quiet, loud thing, this was Pixies' signature thing. And many bands heard it and were like, we want to do that. That's fucking cool. Namely Nirvana. But very much, (laughs) obviously, hear Radiohead, you know? Like, that loud, quiet, loud thing, they did that, obviously, to lesser interesting extent, probably, in Creep. But it's kind of happening here, too. It's just more interesting. It's cooler. No, I agree. That's a musical term. Cooler. (laughs) (laughs) No, I totally totally agree. And I think, you know, it's one thing to, like, want to do something, and it's another thing to, like, actually be able to do it, right? Like, we can all listen to the Pixies and say, oh, I want to do that, but how many people can, right? And so, like, them finding... The ability to do that, I think, was huge for them. And in their own way. Right. Like, oh, yeah, that yeah, doesn't yeah. sound like a Pixie no. song yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah. You know, yeah. that sounds very much like a Radiohead song. But it's cool that they t- where they took that too. Goddamn. The ending? The fucking... Yeah. If I could be who you wanted. If I could be who you wanted all the time. And the strings. Oh, my God. That part, especially the come, it's the come down after the climax yeah. of the bridge. And he's just kind of like whispering in his falsetto voice. And it's like, so it sounds sincere, which I just don't really associate sincerity with Tom. And I, I guess that sounds like a negative thing, but that's interesting. You don't? That's actually one of the things that I connect the most with Radio Hot on is that I feel that Tom means it whenever he's singing. Maybe I, I need to rephrase that. It's it's not yeah, a lack I take of sincerity. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vulnerability, I would there say. There you go. That's the right word. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, after the bends, you don't... You get, you get vulnerability, but not quite in the same very transparent way as a fake right. plastic trees. Where everything becomes more cryptic and you can feel totally. it, but it's not so clear. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you still definitely have it. Like, I think vulnerability is like a hallmark of Radiohead, but I totally agree with you. Like, this is just like cut and dry. Here it is, vulnerability. Right. Whereas later, like, it's just a feeling. Like, it's just yeah. something where you're like, oh, I can feel your angst. I can feel your pain. I can feel your yearning. But what you're saying is, um, yesterday I woke up sucking a lemon. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, it's like yeah, it's it's like modern art, you know, quote unquote modern art versus classical art type of thing, right? Where it's like you're gonna abstract expressionist, you're gonna get you know paint thrown on the canvas in a very expressive way that's gonna emote something in you that you can't quite describe. I feel like that's where Radiohead ends up, but here it's like more classical painting where it's totally. very much easily understood on first listen. Um, I fucking love it. I find this to be the first in a series of two fuck you albums. Okay, Computer obviously being a fuck you album, but these are the fuck you capitalism, fuck you fame, fuck you fakeness albums. Fake Plastic Trees being a very literal example. The Benz, like we talked about. Although The Benz oddly was written before they finished Pablo Honey. So they didn't actually know that that was going to happen, but Tom said it was prophetic. (laughs) And one note I would say I read, which I didn't know, mm. uh, Tom cites Fake Plastic Tree, specifically that lyric, as him finding his voice as a writer. Oh. Which I think is like very telling, right? Because it's exactly what we just talked about. Fake Plastic Trees, like what is that? 
kind of abstract, but we also understand what he means. It's like also, do you have to say fake if they're plastic? It is really funny to me, but that <laughs> that's a stylistic thing, right? Like, right, right. It's like overkill. It's kind of interesting, right? Right. right. It's like it, it's embodying the same principle as the thing he's talking about, right? And also sounds good. Probably I know that the words right, sound right, right. good within the song, but there was apparently a version of fake plastic trees that Ed O'Brien said sounded like November rain. And I'm dying to hear it. They, right. He said it was bad. This album caused, I mean, Creep started it, but this album really cemented the press being like, why are you such a miserable fuck? You know what I mean? It was just like, <laughs> that was the thing with like, why are you like, and and Tom York, I, it's interesting because maybe because of that quality of his voice that really makes you feel like he means it right. and that vulnerability, he can't get away from people being like, this is you. And that happens a lot with a lot of artists and we want it to be them. But he said this to Melody Maker in 1995. He was like, it's not my fucking day to day. It's not my life. These lyrics aren't self-fulfilling. The Benz isn't my confessional. And I don't want it used as an aid to stupidity and fuckwittery. He was talking about a lot of suicides were apparently linked to the Benz. Mm. Allegedly, I don't know how letters were sent, stuff like that. Right. And he was like, it's not an excuse to wallow. I don't want to know about your depression. If you write to me, I'll write back angrily telling you not to give in to all that shit. Shut up, fuck off, and go buy the Smith's back catalog instead. <laughs> Gorgeous. Gorgeous. I love that in interviews, uh, he did not he did not care about what he was going to say. It seemed they made him very uncomfortable. We've had a year, we're pretty burnt out, actually. The fuses are going and so on. So we're ready to do the next one. You're ready to do the next yes, one? Yes, this is, this is sort of the end of the stint. Yeah. So if we can't think of anything to say, it's because we're burnt out. Yeah, I get it. But it is such a, especially the bands compared to just what you laid out or that quote. Yeah. Because I'm trying to think of my mom, like listening to like fake plastic trees and then hearing that quote. It's such a contrast of like what you feel in fake plastic trees and totally. what his attitude was outside of his art, essentially. Yeah, there was that great, um, there's in the documentary, Making Friends is Easy, a tour documentary basically, right. but there's there's a part where they show like a British television, it looks like a, like a morning show news presenter, like playing, I can't remember if it was High and Dry or Fake Plastic Trees. And afterwards they're like, oh yeah, that's depressed. I don't would not want to listen to that. Who wants to listen to that? That is so very depressing. It's really funny. Right. It reminds me of actually like um, Bob Dylan in the mid 60s when he became like the poster boy for like protest music and then really wanted no part of it. And like that informed his stylistic choice to get way more abstract. I feel a parallel between, because Dylan, especially during that era, was very ornery in the same way I feel like that mm. York was in that they wrote these songs that kind of transcended even the song itself. They became these symbols for the culture. And it's like, not every artist wants that pressure. They don't, right. you know, they just are expressing what they feel. Not necessarily. Well, then don't write such beautiful music. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's the prison, but I don't know. I just feel like, especially preluding to OK Computer, I feel like some of that orneriness, some of that not wanting to be an idol informs right. his decision to get a little bit more abstract. Yeah. I mean, this is a little reductive, but I'll stand by it. I think the, the central tension of Tom York, which producer Dylan has said is the central tension of every artist. But again, I really think it's pronounced here is please love me. 
don't look at me. <laughs> Do not perceive me. Fuck you. You know, like right. it's very just like the push yeah, and pull yeah, yeah. between that. Yeah. I would love if you are so amenable that we could hear Street Spirit fade out before I move on because that is a fucking stunning song. I know, goddamn gorgeous, beautiful song, stamp of approval. It's one of my favorite songs on the bends. It's so haunting. It's so haunting. So good. Has a real weird music video too. We haven't even started talking about the music videos, but this one's real weird. Do you not feel this is in its way foreshadowing some of Kid A? It is to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a minimal quality that I think a lot of Kid A has just like in terms of stripped down in- instrumentation. And it's kind of dancey. It's like sad dancey. <laughs> It's like I do a little sad yeah. dance when I right. hear it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's so dark. It's such a dark song. I feel like so is Idiotech, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So, but in verse three, mm-hmm. I have to really intentionally try to listen to Radiohead lyrics because I always get so lost in just melody and music. But right. he says, cracked eggs, dead birds scream as they fight for life. <laughs> I can feel death, see its beady eyes, all these things into position, all these things will one day swallow. I can feel death, see its beady eyes. Like what? All these things into position. All these things into position. All these things will one day swallow. He's an incredible lyricist. It's so dark. But then, okay, this is what I... I didn't realize what he said at the end and what he essentially ends the album on is he says, immerse your soul in love. Yeah. Which is like such a beautiful way to end, but also... That's not the sentiment I really feel at the end of that song, but I mean, it's there. Tom York has said this and all the other members of radio have said this. And I really, I think I get it. What they're saying is that they actually don't think the music is that dark. Like they actually think that it has hope baked into it and has like a good message baked into it. There's a really telling, really beautiful part of meeting people is easy. That documentary which is, have you watched it, Cole? I used to own it. I haven't watched it in years. It's kind of like an art fuck project, essentially. But I thought it was very, for my purposes, really interesting because it did really show the like, they really drive home the headspace of being on tour and being pummeled with all that stuff. But there's just one part where Tom is talking in a taxi and he's like, I'm paraphrasing, but like, it's like, I know what it feels like to have an album makes so much sense to you and it imprints on your heart. And like, that's so important for you. And so like, he's talking about playing shows for his fans or whatever. And he's like, I've been that person. And he like, he talks about the Smiths full of hollow and an REM album. And he's like, that's why we do this. Like we do this because we can do that for someone else the way it was done for us. It it being imprinted on your heart, you know, it's like 
every note of it. That's strange. So I think every time I meet someone who's like that age, who comes to one of our shows, it's a big deal for me. Because I reckon I can, I can remember how much of a big deal it was. You know, I never met at the time, but I know how much of a big deal it is because I've been since. You know? And I really do think that I give myself the chills just there, babe, just so you right. know. Yeah. It just yeah. like that to me is like the little like egg of what Radiohead thinks about how they're giving hope. It's like they're providing connection, right? Right. And people do feel seen by these songs. Yeah. I felt seen by these songs. And I don't know. I just think that makes sense to me. And the people being like, well, it's too sad. It's like, well, some people are fucking sad, bitch. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and like sometimes the best like anecdote to the sadness or even isolation or alienation is to know that you aren't alone. So when you see or hear someone like Tom York, who is ascended to this place of stardom, also feeling this way, it does capture, even if the music itself is not traditionally uplifting or hopeful sounding, right? <laughs> you do connect. There's like a conversation. The audience and the artist are kind of uniting through the music. It's a reason to keep going. That, that in itself is the reason to keep going. It's a big tangent for me, but like <laughs> that's the, that is music. That is why it exists, right? Like that, because there are things that are inexpressible. There are totally. feelings that we have that are inexpressible that are only... We can keep it to music. I think other arts obviously apply, but it exists for a reason because we aren't able to articulate it with words. I think the the sound, the frequencies, the union of all these things, we identify with the the abstract feeling of it, which is like so much of what emotion is. It's like words are only, can only express so much. And I feel like that's why we really identify with musicians particularly because we point to that and we say, that's how I'm feeling. Right. Like they, they give us like a new language to sort of like, yeah, I totally agree. The last thing I'll say about street spirit fade out is like, I think again, the lyrics here get really opaque, Yeah. (laughs) but I feel like the major shift, I I obviously can't speak too intelligently to the musical shift between this and okay computer. But like, I think one of the major shifts thematically and I'll say it spiritually Mm. is that like the Benz is largely about the inner self of Tom York and okay. Computer is largely about the world around him. Right. And I think street spirit fade out is sort of a bridge between those two. Like it is kind of talking about the world and like, you know, there's this line that's like be a world child, form a circle before we all go under. And this is like a thing that he's brought up a lot where it's like the only thing important in life is connection. Mm. And when he gets to OK Computer, it's talking about like that disconnection that we are suffering at the hands of technology globalization, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, just want to point that out. Gorgeous last song to lead us in. Don't know if that was intentional. Does it matter? I don't think so. (laughs) He also said uh, Street Spirit was like the purest song, at least like the purest song he ever wrote Mm. up until that point, at least which you can feel that. He says it was inspired by R.E.M., which is interesting because I don't totally hear it, but I, mm, I love yeah. that because I love R.E.M. And I think that while they don't have sonic similarities as much, I do think they have a lot of like career arc and uh, just like the way they approached music and the industry and stuff similarities. 
Right. Yeah. And Virgilin says endurance. No, nobody's put out more albums than REM. <laughs> REM, U2, and Weezer are just neck and neck for the most albums ever. <laughs> There's a line I must read you. Rolling Stone, 1995. Tom, 26, is so thin and sharp edged, you'd cut yourself if you touched him. He looks like a spiny amphibian who, if kissed by a beautiful maiden, would turn into a hamster. Jesus. What the fuck, bitch? <laughs> Well, have some of these, I have a complicated relationship with music journalists. Like, where do they get the audacity to write that about someone? Like, what? It's a person. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Especially because he probably gave you some of his time, too. Which I'm yeah. Just like, also, again, he was hot and you were wrong. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the reviews. They start to get pretty good reviews around this time. Like, the Benz doesn't sell as well as... Pablo Honey, I don't think. Pablo Honey sold really well off the back of Creep. Yeah, right. But it's better reviewed. Oh, we didn't even mention My Iron Lung. That's okay. We, you kind of mentioned it before, how it's like, yeah, yeah. it's commenting on Creep and how, right, you know. Right. Robert Criscow gave it a C, so he didn't love it um, <laughs> in uh, The Village Voice. And he said, admired by Brit Critz, who can't tell whether they're pop or rock and their record company, which pushed and shoved this 1995 follow-up until it went gold last spring. They try to prove Creep wasn't an immortal one-shot by pretending that it wasn't a joke. Not that there's anything deeply phony about Tom York's angst. It's just a social given, a mindset that comes as naturally to a 90s guy as the skilled guitar noises that frame it. Thus, the words achieve precisely the same pitch of aesthetic necessity as the music, which is none at all. The arrogance of some of these reviews is <laughs> astounding. I mean, Chris Gow, we love the gene on this show, but sometimes he gets it wrong. I get it. I love the Benz. I think I think the Benz is an incredible album, especially given what rock music was doing in 1995. Yeah. I think it was definitely in many ways like super interesting. Yeah, that's my that's my hot take on that. <laughs> Don't worry. In England, Caitlin Moran for the time said the Benz is easily the greatest rock album since Nevermind. Oh wow. It possibly overshadows Nevermind, is what she said. Wow. So, you know, don't you worry. People were loving it. It got good reviews many places, but Chris Gow didn't like it. And producer Dylan has pointed out that as is the classic move in retrospective, it got a million fantastic reviews. (laughs) All of a sudden it was the best album that ever came out. Right, right, right. Okay. So in 1995, they tour on the back of this album, um, opening for R.E.M. on the Monster Tour. Here's an important moment. Midway through that tour, Brian Eno commissions them to contribute to the HELP album, which was a charity compilation organized by War Child International, an organization that provided aid to like war-stricken areas like Bosnia. They had to record one song. They only had one day because they were on tour. They recorded Lucky in five hours with Nigel. Did we point out yet that Nigel is maybe the most British name that's ever existed? (laughs) Nigel. Nigel. This was a big deal because they got really inspired by the making of Lucky. And they said that Lucky shaped the sound and mood of OK Computer. Like it sort of set the tone for them. Right. In 1996, they tore opening for Alanis Morissette. This will become important later. I just want everyone to know. (laughs) In 1997, prior to OK Computer coming out, one could argue that Britpop died. RAP Britpop, it was over. Cause of death, we don't know. People say Euro 96, which is the uh, football tourney that uh, England 
spectacularly uh, lost badly within early rounds. I'm not a football person, soccer for Americans. Some might say, Some might say it was because Be Here Now by Oasis wasn't actually not that good. Some might say it was because Blur and Paul put out non sort of Britpop albums. They kind of grew out of it. Princess Diana died. That might have had something to do with it. Who knows? Britpop died. I'm bringing this up to say that Radiohead sort of loitered alongside Britpop and was sometimes lumped in with it erroneously, but they didn't have much to do with it, right? And famously, Oasis hated them. Radiohead in particular. They're just miserable. They're sitting in back of limousines, you know, to tell to the camera about how bored they are being in the group. It's like, well, if you don't fucking enjoy it, retire, do us all a fucking favour, you know, go and live in a fucking mansion in Oxford so we don't have to listen to your miserable fucking bleatings about how shit your life is. And I think the feeling was semi-mutual. Right. I believe it. I read one quote where Tom York says they write primitive songs. <laughs> In their fashion, Noel Gallagher was funnier. He said, I'm aware that Radiohead have never had a fucking bad review. I reckon if Tom York fucking shit into a light bulb and started blowing it like an empty beer bottle, it'd probably get nine out of 10 on fucking mojo. <laughs> I'm aware of that. Technically, they're better songwriters than I am. Have other people's songs ever really touched a generation though? Radiohead? When do people listen to them? Is it when they go out or is it when they come in? Because I'm struggling to think. No, babe, it's people who don't go outside. Come on, what's wrong with you? It's not going out or coming in. It's those of us who stay inside all the time. Anyways, I thought that was funny. I just wanted to bring that up. And another kind of important thing that I was thinking about a lot during this time is that particularly in the UK and a little bit later in America, the predominant music going alongside Britpop was electronic music, right? They had a really yeah. strong electronic music DJ culture, massive attack. Aphex Twin. <laughs> Warp Records. Right. All that shit was like, kind of like, late 80s basically came into the mix and that was huge there which of course informs yes <laughs> so much of i mean obviously the big jump is is kid a but i think it's obvious that 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 was starting to creep in with okay computer where if we're comparing we're saying ben's okay computer kid a although i don't know if anyone predicts the the huge leap of kid a and how much you know Aphex twin specifically is going to influence an album like that okay computer is a very logical bridge between the bends and and kid a other sort of important releases in 1997 for me to point out are prodigy put out the fat of the land chemical brothers dig your own hole Chemical Brothers had gotten a big following after producing the Beastie Boys album, Paul's Boutique, and then uh, working with Beck. Also, Bjork put out Homogenic. Which, in my mind, related. No, yeah, yeah. The parallels, 
I think I feel like Bjork's a huge influence on Radiohead and vice versa. They were, I thought I always saw them as parallel figures, kind of. Yeah. I always kind of put them, Bjork, them, and PJ Harvey in sort of a similar container, even though I don't right. know that they followed similar trajectories. But like no, yeah, yeah. I do think that like their willingness to change sound all the time was very similar. And I know they all kind of really respected each other. Oh, and also, sorry, lastly, Stereo Lab, Dots and Loops. Stereo Lab important, mm. I think, for the shifting sound of, you know, popularity of sort of electronic e music. The number right. one records of 1997, though, were like things like No Doubt and Aerosmith's Nine Lives, Spice Girls, also <laughs> a cause of death of Britpop, probably the Spice Girls. <laughs> So OK Computer comes out in May of 1997. Happy birthday, Yasi. You're 15. Here is OK Computer. Produced by Nigel Godrich and Radiohead. He didn't actually produce The Benz. I didn't really mention this. He was a producer on The Benz, but I think he only produced one song, which was Black Star. Yeah. Yeah, it was one song. I forgot the circumstances under which why... There's some unique circumstances where he ended up producing the one song, but yeah, he was an engineer at that point. Yeah, but he gets a production credit, obviously, because he did that one. Right. But they made Lucky with him, that song that I just mentioned for yeah. the Brian Eno compilation. Then they hired him to build them a mobile studio. Amazing. <laughs> love this. I also love that they started at this place called The Fruit Farm, which is a converted Apple store, not the iPhones, babe. Apples, <laughs> actual apples that you eat. But then they moved on to Jane Seymour's Elizabethan mansion outside of Bath. Jane Seymour, famously Dr. Quinn, the medicine woman, amongst other gorgeous roles, a very famous British actress. The mansion is incredible. Yeah. I'm sure you saw the photos yeah. of it. She did good. Dr. Quinn, medicine woman paid well. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how they, they didn't just record the album in there they recorded it like in hallways and yeah. they really like utilized the space in a very unique way that i don't i'm not sure okay computer sounds the way it does without being in this very unique space to record an album totally yeah i mean like kind of like in the way that like i think albini famously recorded some pixies stuff like in stairwells to get right. the sound of vocals like there's like one particular song on here that they recorded, I think, I mean, you, you must have read this too, on like a big, yeah. a room that was like a big stone floor. Exit music for Exit a, music. A film, okay, yeah. yeah. Which makes sense because that sounds so like roomy. <laughs> yeah. Did you play this game while you were prepping to, I always play this game where I'm like, what's my favorite album? This oh my is God, so yeah. hard. What's my favorite album? It's hard to even know where to start with this album. And yeah, in terms of favorites, I mean, mine's Kid A only for kind of sentimental reasons, but it's like, take your pick, Jesus. I think mine's OK Computer. Okay. We'll revisit, but I think I landed back on OK Computer. I love Kid A too, but like start to finish, OK Computer is goddamn gorgeous, beautiful album. Let's just say before we get into it, Tom York said, I think people feel sick when they hear OK Computer. Nausea was part of what we were trying to create. <laughs> the thematic shift here, you mentioned it before, where it's, I mean, I guess it's the simplest way is, you know, from interior to exterior, right? I think there's a quote where he says mm -hmm. something like, I'm just recording what I see around right. me. Yeah, and this yeah. is like really the shift of like, not really talking about relationship stuff, 
talking about alienation still, but in a much more, I guess, more universal way, not specific to like a relationship or just an individual experience, but more like what is the culture of today doing to us as individuals? And so much of OK Computer thematically is addressing exactly that. It's like, totally. what is consumer culture doing to us? What is like proliferation of technology doing to us? What is globalization doing to us? And it's like, while there might have been kind of political tendencies, seeds of political stuff in like past work, like obviously politics, you could kind of draw the line here where Tom is very much more open about you know, political matters or wars even. And it's, it's also weird because like he doesn't explicitly say it, right? Like it's all very cryptic, but the feeling of it, like it makes sense that the nausea thing, because the feeling of it is a little, even from the opening guitar riff into like this weird sample drum loop that's like kind of off and like little just like don't quite know where the pocket is. And like, I'm talking about Airbag, the opening song. Right. There is a kind of like tension throughout that I think, yeah, was kind of, I think, part of why this album resonates so much and really is, I think, a very like timeless record is like a cliche. But I do think like there's something about OK Computer that it doesn't sound like music in 1997 it's aged so well because it doesn't sound like music anywhere, right? It's like, it's it's singular. They nailed it. It's like start front to back, you know, easily one of the greatest albums of all time, which is, again, maybe a cliche, but I think in this case, it's like very true to the point where it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to even know where to start with something this good because it almost feels, trying to articulate it, it's just like, it's, we're just never going to do it justice. <laughs> I know, it's, it's really good. <laughs> no surprises is like overtly political. I mean, there's right. a line that says bring down the government, right. you know? <laughs> right. I think you're right. I think the shift from the Benz to OK Computer is the problem is with me to the problem is with you right. and the you being the world. Right. Paranoid Android. What do you think? I think that I think that's probably the I would argue maybe the centerpiece of the album. Do albums have centerpieces? <laughs> yes. I'm not arguing with that that take. Goddamn gorgeous, beautiful five songs in one. <laughs> yeah, it's a master. I mean, literally three songs stitched together. Right? Was the concept of it. It doesn't feel like it, it doesn't feel disjointed or anything. I mean, it, it kind of does in the sense that they want it to, but right. the beginning, like one third of the song comes in and it's like good. But then I'm like, I'm always waiting for like yeah. that second part to come in where it's like kind of pissed off and it's like, you know, the ambition makes you look pretty ugly, kicking, squealing, Gucci little piggy. It's like just this like epileptic anger, you know? Right. I think it works because they understood the arc of the song. And like, yeah, the beginning relative to everything else that comes is like there's not m much going on and you're just, it's, it's kind of building and building and building and it's like this huge cathartic release that you can only get when you build that long and you take the time to feel the pressure, right? And it pays off so well in like 
I don't know how many times you get a pay, like that cathartic payoff mm-hmm. where you it builds, 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 and it just explodes. There's a really cool thing I have to point out. Sorry. Yeah, no, please. About the third part specifically, before the kind of crazy outro, there's like a, you know the dream sequences in old movies where like there's this like this foggy wash that goes over the screen. There's like the like harps. Yes. The harps kind of play mm-hmm. and transition. So there's like that, that moment into like the rain down section yeah. where the song just like all of a sudden stops. Okay. And then we get this very long, there's like these low choir voices. So Johnny Greenwood writes this part of the song and he uses this technique called the lament bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a mm-hmm. Baroque music trope. Okay. <laughs> so it's if classical. If it ain't Baroque, you know, you don't need to fix it. <laughs> Think Bach. And essentially what a lament bass is, is just a, an extended descending bass line. So a bass line that goes lower and lower and lower. It's another crazy 14 chord sequence. So this just this part, this third part alone is 14 chords long. And it's descending essentially the entire time. And of course, Tom is singing, rain down, mm. rain down, rain down from a great height. Just like a cool, very cool detail in like a song that has a million details. Like for instance, around the three minute mark where the Gucci little piggy part comes in, they switch to seven, eight time all of a sudden, which is a a very odd time signature, especially one that you just don't switch to in the middle of the song, but they do and it somehow works. And it's like a big differentiation if we're trying to look at a kind of overarching progression of the band musically, where the Benz was a huge leap in terms of just quality of songwriting, quality of sound, distinct individual parts, everyone coming to know their roles, more dynamics. I think where OK Computer really makes a leap is in song structure. So the Benz is mostly traditional song structure, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, like, you know, typical pop formula. The things that they do within those individual sections are very interesting, but more or less, they're kind of sticking to like standard song structure. But when you get to OK Computer, I mean, there's so many instances of them veering off this kind of typical song structure. I think Paranoid Android is like the most extreme example of whatever six or seven minute song, three very unique, like suites, I kind of call them that are all stitched together in like a very creative way that works. But like, it's very hard to do. A song like Paranoid Android, I love it because it's popular. And like songs like this, six minute, seven minute epic songs like this don't always get popular. And I love that about this song. Speaks again to the balance of like pushing limits, but staying accessible. I think this is a great case of that. But just the willingness to even try this, I think is huge. I think... Tom said he was inspired partly by A Day in the Life, not specifically of this song, but just generally of the album by the Beatles, which is like the last song on Sgt. Pepper, mm. which stitches together two, three songs and has that big orchestral moment in the middle of it. So I think that's one thing I would say about this album musically is like the forms are, I don't know, we might talk about Karma Police later, but that's yeah. a very interesting form that also parallels the Beatles. But that's that's one thing that when I'm listening through this album is all the songs are very interesting structurally and I think that's what makes it very singular or or contributes to like the singular quality of this where it's like we're still getting the catchy melodies but they're also like positioned in a way that we're not used to hearing and and it works and I think that's the most important part is that you can try these things and it 
could fail, but they obviously nailed it. Totally. To me, like the decision to make Paranoid Android the first single of your album, oh like you, your point being almost seven minutes long and being fucking weird. That's a cool decision. Like you could have put yeah. Karma Police as the first single. Like if you wanted to like really just like, who cares, be successful. Karma right. Police is very accessible as a song, yeah. but Paranoid Android, a little bit less accessible, but it fucking worked. Also, I have to say about Paranoid Android, it was apparently written by Tom York after an unpleasant night at a Los Angeles bar. I don't know if it was Los Angeles because he called it a pub, but maybe British people call all bars pubs. He also, in an interview, in reference to the interviewer asking him about cocaine, he said, I can't bring myself to take a drug that people get killed for. Besides, the only people I've seen on it are just the dullest fucking people on earth. That's what we wrote Paranoid Android about. Wow, I didn't know that. He also said in the documentary that it's a funny song, which I kind of like, I kind of get what he's saying. Like, he's like kind of like mocking people. Right, yeah, yeah. That and Paranoid Android is definitely a joke. You can't possibly take that song completely seriously. Unless, you, of course, you're a critic. There was also a thing I read that um, an interviewer asked him about all the pig imagery. And he talked about, he was like, oh, I was dating a woman. <laughs> and <Yeah>. the Gucci <laughs> little piggy is like... It's such a great line. Talking about like a woman he was dating. Like those lines, ambition makes you pretty ugly. Gucci little piggy. It's like, ooh, drag me to hell. <laughs> but we know exactly, we know like I can picture that person in my mind yeah just on that abstract description of no it. ambition just vibes but yes because <laughs> i like clothes <laughs> also just back to the alanis morissette tour they did play a 10 minute version of paranoid android oh my god testing it out on the alanis morissette audience and that just for some reason really sends me it's so perfect yeah the idea of the people who came to see alanis morissette one hand in her pocket thank you india <laughs> <laughs> we love Lance Morissette, but then are right, like right. subjected to a 10 minute version right. of Paranoid Android with like a super long like organ outro, like <laughs> is really fun. They're like, oh, we're going to go get a beer, right? And we'll be back. Right. And I, I saw an ME review that called it Bohemian Rhapsody for Morbid Introverts. <laughs> love it. I love it. If I'm remembering correctly, it was also a stitch together of a few songs. How do you not remember it correctly? I see a little. Well, I mean, when I remember the song, Cowboys? but I'm pretty sure it was like separate songs that came together, which was what Paranoid Android was as well. Oh yeah, okay. just like it so, like, like song it. fragments, right? It definitely like just stitched like together. Yeah. Apparently, during the writing process or whatever of this song, they had been listening to a bunch of Ennio Morricone and Can. So Can you hear that in the songs? Particularly the Morricone. I never know how to say that. You're probably right, Morricone. Okay. He does movie soundtracks, right? Yeah, spaghetti westerns. They're like orchestral. They're, They're very atmospheric. They're very like emotionally driven. As we're talking about where it's like there's abstraction, but we kind of, we understand the feeling. And it's also very cinematic. I feel like this album is a very cinematic album. There's images and descriptions of things like a girl, Gucci Little Piggy, and various kind of, I think he called them, yeah, he said, on this album, the outside world became all there was. I was just taking Polaroids of things Mm -hmm. around me moving too fast, which is like 
a very cinematic approach totally. to lyricism and to the album itself. So I definitely hear where those influences it. I know that he also said like Miles Davis Bitches Brew was an influence. Yeah. <laughs> which is not something I had thought about listening to OK Computer, but I, when you hear something like that, you kind of start to see where maybe some of that influence kind of was attempted to be kind of grasped. I think Johnny even said, OK Computer was a product of being in love with all these brilliant records, trying to recreate them and missing. <laughs> and so I think that's very telling to the process of, I think they had a handful of songs, specific songs, Again, A Day in the Life by the Beatles is one they named specifically. Yeah, they were also like really into DJ Shadow. They said the airbag was them trying to make a DJ Shadow song, but like they were like, oh, we failed at it, but it's still a really cool song. Right, yeah. The, I mean, yeah, even like a, a quote-unquote rock band attempting to sample their drummer mm, is a very mm-hmm. odd move. I mean, within the framework of what was going on and what was the rise of electronic music at the time, it it does make sense in retrospect. But even even a band attempting that at that time is kind of unusual, like a, a band. Like usually electronic producers were singular or a duo. And obviously most of the work was, you know, made on computers. But here you have a live band where even I think um, Ed said 80% of this album was recorded live, which is actually kind of mind-blowing for how kind of complex and like, how many timbres there are on this record, but very much all these disparate influences, none that you can very like point your finger to and say, this sounds exactly like this, but all of them kind of homogenizing into what became OK, OK Computer. Yeah, I, I saw this interesting tweet the other day that was like, it's kind of sad that George Lucas took all the like Westerns and different, you know, whatever, different kinds of films that he saw growing up and made Star Wars. And then everyone who saw Star Wars growing up just made another Star Wars. Right. I get the parallel though. Yeah, it's interesting. Right? You yeah. know, I think I think that we suffer from a lot of people who saw Star Wars, which is Radiohead, and made a, another Star Wars, you know? Right. <laughs> but it's just not as yeah, good. Yeah. Whereas I think Radiohead was really trying to like incorporate, like you're saying, all these like sort of really interesting influences as they perceived them, right. parts of them or whatever. God, there's so many good songs on this fucking oh album yeah. that I want to talk about. We won't play it, but I I just want to give a special shout out to Let Down, even though I know it's probably not one of the most interesting songs on the album because it's kind of more of a straight rock song. But no, I love it. No? Okay, You're great. Wrong. Great. <laughs> I love it. Okay, I'm dying to talk about this. I'm glad you brought it up. I love Let Down. It's one of my faves. It's one of my favorites as well. And it's another music nerdy thing, but hopefully it's kind of... uh, (laughs) I never know if these are like interesting to other people. They're interesting. So the very, very cool part about Let Down is that the very first thing you hear is Johnny's guitar riff. It's kind of like this noodly, meandering, arpeggio, as you like your favorite word. What is an arpeggio for the people listening who are not as like smart and sophisticated as me and you? <laughs> um, it's just a chord. A chord is just essentially three notes played simultaneously. An arpeggio is just playing a chord individual, like with individual notes instead. Oh, okay. An arpeggio of this chord. 
Wait, that makes so much sense. It's it's not as complicated. I as always I, thought I couldn't possibly understand this group of islands because they're all Italian names and like right. they sound intimidating, but they're really very simple. They're they're sexist, honestly. They're against yeah. the evil minds of women. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the main guitar riff is in five four time, so. Typically, songs are in 4-4 four, four time, which means there's four beats per measure. You count one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. You can clap your hands very easily. Like everyone, even if you don't know how to describe 4-4 four, four time, you know exactly what it is and you can clap along to it. That's why we can dance to music. It's like, because we, it's like a language we understand that everyone understands, at least in the West. But this one's in 5-4 time, so there's an extra beat and it's an odd time signature you don't often hear, especially not in popular music. So it's, it's odd in that way. But then when the band comes in, they come in in 4-4 four, four time. So everyone's playing in 4-4 four, four time, all playing in the same tempo. So it lines up. But the way that the, the parts overlap, the guitar doesn't repeat in the same spots as everyone else repeats. So like, if just think of the difference between 5 and 4 and then, you know, multiply 4 plus 4, 4 plus 4, and then 5 plus 5, 5 plus 5. If you can imagine those I guess those lines of numbers on a graph, like they're not going to line up symmetrically. Okay. And that's what happens in the song. And, and all that to say, if you listen to the song, it feels like the guitar part is like a part of, but separate from everyone else. It's like isolated and like alienated, but it's also in it, if that makes sense. And if you listen to like what Tom is talking about, it's about isolation. It's about specifically transit it was the metaphor that he was talking about and and you know people like commuting to work so there's like there's a correlation between the alienation of the guitar with everyone else expressing the alienation of being alive while simultaneously with everyone yeah which was a very common critique tom made over and over and like this is where i know some of this stuff was intentional because johnny talks about this specifically he says quote the theme of transport and movement and anonymity works with the music. It's about that feeling you get when you're in transit, but you're not in control of it. You just go past thousands of places and thousands of people and you're completely removed from it. So it's like, what a better metaphor for a musical metaphor for exactly what Tom York is yeah, expressing. Totally. To have this disassociated guitar part amongst the band, but also separated right. from it. Like, wow. so cool. That's really fucking cool. Most of the time you were talking, I was the meme of the lady doing math, you know, but then, <laughs> then I understood, <laughs> then it clicked into place. Yeah. That is really fucking cool. And the fact that it's intentional and like, it's like a giant Easter egg for people like you um, who understand this kind of stuff. And the rest of us are just like, what a cool song. Love it. I think whether or not you can describe it. You think I could perceive it? You can perceive it intuitively and it doesn't quite matter that you can describe it. It's like when, you, when you're trying to describe an album like, okay, computer, again, it's like, it transcends words. We just hear it and we know it's fucking amazing. Yeah. This is my passion, I believe, and why I actually do what I do on Dissect. It's like, there are reasons for it. Right. There's a reason why Radiohead stands above the rest and we can point to moments like this and say, that's a reason. And then it's accumulation of all these details, right? That it all accumulates to this overarching feeling of like, this is amazing. That's so true because like, Oftentimes, and I've said it on the show a million times, I'm like, this song makes me feel like this and I can't explain why, you know? And it's not just like whatever the lyrics. And clearly like this song does really drive that aloneness feeling home. And now you have kind of explained why, even if it's on a level that I 
don't intellectually grasp while listening, you know, it doesn't matter because like my emotional and intuition grasps it. And like, that's so cool. (laughs) I think it's cool because like, I don't think it needs justification or explanation, but it is kind of nice to like have it, you know, like you can listen to Radiohead and know it's very, very good without like having to describe it in, in the way that I tend to try to describe things because we just feel it. Right. But there are reasons why we feel it. Man, that's so good. Well, you brought up something that I think we should just like unpack a little bit, which was how letdown is about using a transportation and transit as, you know, a, a jumping off point to talk about alienation. And largely this album sort of does that because we talked about earlier. It's like born of like the, you know, dissociation that comes from endless touring, which is the place that Tom was writing from. And there is an article that producer Dylan found by Amanda Petrusich in The New Yorker. It's more recently, it's in the last couple of years, but kind of talking about how while this album wasn't about computers, even though it's called OK Computer. I mean, I might hear OK Computer. I'm like, OK Computer, you know, <laughs> go off. It's giving computer. <laughs> that it has become to be about that. And I kind of feel like it was also about that. Like, I kind of feel like you can't pull the two apart, right? Like the alienation and isolation at the hands of what is, you know, in the most specific and individual sense in terms of Tom York touring, but Zoomed Out is about like, what is the touring? It's the result of capitalism, right? It's the result of like sucking the blood dry out of these cash cows, like you said, and what is, you know, what makes it possible globalization and what makes, you know, people feel more and more isolated and alienated these things, you know, and technology, you know, even though it was like rudimentary technology, 97, there's plenty of technology, there's plenty of computers, you know, like there's a lot of people connecting online. There's a lot of, you know, it was, it was a happier and safer space and Twitter wasn't there to addle my mind and leave me. (laughs) incapacitated as a person, but you know, it was happening. And I think right. while this album is prescient, it's, it was also like really a reflection of the time. Ultimately it can all be boiled back down to consumerism and capitalism and how that's just increasingly made people feel alone. Yeah. And I think the reason why we revere it so much thematically, and maybe we give it more credit than the intent, because like they've been pretty open about this is not a concept album. Right. Johnny Greenwood said, I think one album title and one computer voice do not make a concept right. album. This is a bit of a red herring. So it's like, as much as they want to distance themselves, I think why we think about it in, in, in the ways that you just laid out is because it's aged so damn well in terms of what technology has become and the parallel scale of like increasing technology and the universal disassociation. And, and it's like, we're all connected, but alone, totally. like that feeling. They were so early on that. And I think a lot of that has to do with just Tom's general feeling of being disconnected. Yeah, totally. Paired with this emphasis on, you know, him taking Polaroid pictures, looking around at what he sees. And he, what he sees is now people, you know, in masses. I think, you know, cars come a lot, a, a lot as like a metaphor in their early work. Because I think it's like when you zoom out like bird's eye above 9 a.m. commute. Mm. It's like you just see like ants herding towards totally. ants marching, making money will. for big corporations that are sitting behind cum- you know, behind computers. So. He did. Dave Matthews Band saying about that in Ants Marching. It's literally about that. Go on. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> 
So I think like they were early on it and it's only kind of like exponentially grown to a place that we, no matter what your job is, we're all feeling, I think that way, even like obviously the pandemic like exasperated that and accelerated that process even more. So when you do look back on an album like this, it's more than the words, it's the feeling that he captured, that juxtaposition between isolation, yet being connected, being around people online, in real life, but also feeling very detached from it. I think it just, it's just aged so well. And it's obviously they couldn't have like predicted it fully, but it's just, it panned out kind of perfectly. Totally. And it's it's not a song, but I mean, Fitter Happier is crazy right. in how much it is still the exact same. Like I listen to, I, mean, I don't often sit and listen to it because I, I don't think that's the point of it, but because um, it's the one that's the computer voice just the whole way through. Right, yeah, yeah. Fitter, happier, more productive, comfortable, not drinking too much. You know, this is this is a thing about optimization, right? It's like right. all the things that everywhere around you is telling you how to optimize, and optimization is ultimately for, for more productivity, right? So that's the yeah, reason exactly. that's behind it. It's not yeah. to make you happier, it's to make you more productive. Right. And that was already a thing, you know, capitalism really fucking the 80s obviously but the 90s it's like babe starbucks is here we're gonna sell you only starbucks coffee like brands have this huge rise and like outsourcing is really happening we'll get into it more with kid a because obviously that book no logo comes out a little bit later and they get really into the evils of branding and stuff but like i just thought that that track is just like whoof like the fucking, you know, right. fitter, happier, more productive, comfortable, not drinking too much, regular exercise at the gym, three days a week. I was like, drag me again straight to hell. <laughs> <laughs> like car wash also on Sundays. Like it's just like a list of how to be the most productive you can be. And it gets so crazy at the end where it's like, no longer empty and frantic, like a cat tied to a stick, <laughs> like a pig in a cage on antibiotic. Right. Um, Tom York also is vegan and I'm not sure he was vegan then, but a lot of these lyrics do sound like the, the lyrics of a vegan person. <laughs> and what's crazy, and this is like, I guess maybe outside the context of, of OK Computer because it was not really clear back then, but it's like the way that corporative like optimization towards making more money and more productivity like has been individualized with social media. Where we're like totally, we're all brands now, babe. We're all brands. We've all we're all optimizing for the algorithm. Like we're all serving this God algorithm. We're all selling flat tummy tea. Just right. kidding. <laughs> but, but but holler it's at me, crazy. flat tummy tea, if you want me to sell it. It's for really you. it's really crazy. Like it's really crazy. Patricia <laughs> was like, "What if Tom York sold flat tummy tea? I would literally might die." <laughs> There's so many other songs I want to talk about on here. Oh, I don't even know. Where like, let's talk about Karma Police, but we are not leaving this fucking recording until we also discuss No Surprises. Tell me, you started to say it, like, what is it about Karma Police? Yeah, the thing I would point out, song structure, again, like that's another, that's a big thing that jumps out to me for this album specifically. This is in what's called terminally climactic form, which is like a really fancy word. Uh, All it means is like, the last section of the song terminally is, climactic. Yeah, I love it. I love <laughs> so that. So it starts out as a typical song, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Kind of 
kind of strange that the chorus is quieter than the verses. This is what you get when you mess with us. You know, people do do that. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what you get yeah. is like the chorus. Um, and that's like the soft part of the song. Uh, but it all builds up towards what what is called the terminal climax. And that's when, after we get to what feels like the bridge and the song really explodes there at the end. It never looks back. So we've reached the terminal climax. We're not going to go back to the chorus. We're not going to go back to the verse. It's essentially identical to Hey Jude. So if you think about Hey Jude, there's verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And then when it gets to the na-na-na-na part, it never looks back and they do the na-na-na part for like, I forgot, So much na-na-na in that song. Right. And that's a terminal climax. There's no going back from that section. It's really enjoyable for me. And what's kind of cool too is like, I don't know if the the structure was modeled after Hey Jude, but certainly the piano part, and I don't know if there's a way to play these two back to back, but the song Sexy Sadie by the Beatles is interpolated as basically they ripped it off uh, in the piano part of of Karma Police. And if you play the two back to back, it's like very clear that it's nearly identical. Cole's there to tell you the smart stuff about the song. I'm there to tell you, have you ever done drugs and just spun around in a circle going <laughs> for a minute there? I lost myself. But okay, this, okay. I lost this is my, the thing. It's the best. Highly recommend. That's the terminal climax. Like that's, that's me terminally the climaxing on drugs. Exactly. And then I die. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Like the way that you just like p- people that can't see you, which is everyone, like you just had your arms in the air and it was like a euphoric, cathartic moment. Like it is that because of the structure of the song. Ugh, it's gorgeous. Also, I want to point out Radiohead becomes a bit like pavement to me. Hear me out. In the opaqueness of the lyrics where there's always, there's always a couple of lyrics though that you can hang your fucking hat on, which is yeah. what we said in pavement. Like, this is what you'll get when you mess with us. Universal. Right. I've given all I can. It's not enough. Right. Universal. You know, like there's other stuff that doesn't make any sense. Karma plays arrest this girl. Her Hitler hairdo is making me feel ill. I mean, you can see that, but it's maybe not a universal. <laughs> um, I want to say also there's a line in the beginning or the very first verse. He buzzes like a fridge. He's like a detuned mm. radio. Buzzes like This lyric is about alt-radio, literally. Like he said it multiple times that it got to a point where every time alt-radio was on, all he heard was buzzing because it all, to him, in his estimation, sounded the same. same. And so that's where that lyric came from, which I thought was kind of interesting. I don't agree, Tom York, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's a really great point you just made because I think it's like indicative of Radiohead overall in terms of lyricism where it's like abstract but accessible, which is like Radiohead in a nutshell, right? Like it's... Yeah. It's challenging, but there's there's just enough to like grasp onto. And it's again, it's like this impressionistic visuals that the feeling is there. You might not know exactly what he's talking about specifically, yeah. but you understand the sentiment and that's really all that matters. Yeah, it's like it reinforces the feeling of the song, which we we kind of talked about the musical feeling of the song, 
but there's those lyrics are there to also like back it up, you know, like right. there, there's a desperation in this song and like, it's also in those lyrics. It's also kind of like cynical. Some of the phrases he uses, it's almost like tongue in cheek, like, cause he'll use very colloquial common phrases, but the way that they're positioned in the song or sung, it's like, it's always a little ironic, cynical. It's almost like, again, like the fake plastic trees thing, like where he's kind of poking fun simultaneously. Totally. This video is really cool too. Oh, the yeah. video that's most stuck in my head of Radiohead is Fake Plastic Trees because it's Tom York being pushed around in a grocery <laughs> shopping cart in the grocery store. Which the director said was an allegory for death and like reincarnation. I was like, okay, cool. Sure, <laughs> sure bro. <laughs> um, okay, as promised, we don't need to play it, but exit music for a film is an incredibly important song. Yeah. They've said it was kind of the most meaningful song, I think, on the album to them. Tom said, we did this song in five hours and took it home and played it and cried. I thought, whoa. And I think it was because we'd been on the road for a while and we were really comfortable with each other. And it just really expressed an excitement and happiness that we felt. And it was written around the time that we first met REM and everything was changing shape. And it was really exciting and terrifying. And that feeling was sort of the feeling that was there all the way through the record. (sighs) Yeah. It's on par to as... um with Street Spirit. Totally. Like it, totally. it evokes the same kind of emotional quality to me. Yeah. It's a song that was commissioned to be in uh, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Goddamn gorgeous movie with a perfect soundtrack. It's not on the soundtrack. It just plays at the end, <laughs> like yeah. over the end credits. Exit music. Yeah. Exit music for a film. The lyrics are obviously referential of Romeo and Juliet. Tom right. York, um, a famously a Romeo and Juliet stan. He loved the film, the old film from the 60s. And he said he just mm. couldn't believe why Romeo and Juliet, after they made love, didn't run away together. He doesn't understand why they didn't end up together. He's questioning Shakespeare? Yes, he sure is. <laughs> I just wanted to bring up Exit Music for a film because I, I think it's an important song on the record. We'll play it later, but there is a Radiohead song on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. One of my fucking favorite Radiohead songs, which is talk show host. You want me? Fucking come on and break the, mm. the Nelly Hooper version, which gets you into the definitely the vibe for, of OK Computer coming forward because it's sort of trip hop, obviously. Right. But we need to talk about Nigel. Just kidding. We need to talk about No Surprises. <laughs> Every time I think of no surprises, I just think of the his head in that. Oh, and the water, like the water. Yeah, and- the, for those of you that haven't seen it, the music video, is really crazy. It's just like Tom York is in a thing, and water is slowly rising around him, and it gets by the end. He's fully immersed in it. In the documentary, you see how many times that he had to like pull the cord and spit out the water. He couldn't get it because his face doesn't move oh, the whole time. Seems right. was really hard to do because he's singing. He's like singing. His eyes are open. Yeah. Right. <sighs> Tell me, Cole, I just feel... This was the first song to be recorded for the album, by the way, besides Lucky, obviously. I love this, and this is... Any moron can understand it, but like, I love that how they juxtapose the sound of like a lullaby. Right. Like this childish kind of, you know, lullaby music. Which, you know, a little bit like how consumerism lulls you into submission, if you will. Uh oh. For this song that is like pretty overtly anti capitalist, right? I just think that was right. so cool. Yeah, I love this song. It just so nostalgic for me because it was one of the first 
it's another guitar song. Like if you grew up in the nineties and played guitar, like this was a song you learned mm -hmm. this like, um, today by smashing pumpkins. Goddamn gorgeous, beautiful song. Obviously like teen spirit was one everyone learned. No, I think you nailed it though. Like it's again, the fake plastic tree thing where it's like a kind of an innocent image. Yeah, lullaby is a very accurate description of the guitar part. Even the the melody is drawn out and like very fluid and very almost like sweet sounding. And then you like obviously look at the lyrics and you're just like, oh, this is very, yeah, anti-capitalist. I feel like there's like a lot of that kind of juxtaposition on the album. And again, I think it speaks to that dissociation of like being amongst but also separate from and kind of like this dis disintegration of self through consumer culture i love it goddamn gorgeous you know beautiful. it beautiful song exactly beautiful. producer lance pointed out that it has a wouldn't it be nice-esque beach boys moment intro with i think it's the the bells right what to say? I mean, we've already talked about it so much. I just love that like the fifth line is bring down the government <laughs> with that ding, ding. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring down the government. It's perfect. Yeah, it's really, it's it really is like, I mean, we already said it. It's just really is like the quiet desperation of being trapped by capitalism and consumerism into a life that like you may not like or want and you can't get out of it right and there's a catchiness to it that's kind of eerie yeah it's definitely eerie it's like truman show ass song <laughs> right 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 yeah there's a definitely yeah there's kind of meta pleasantville like, or whatever is that movie? Right, yeah pleasantville is actually a, a great metaphor right you have to remind yourself sometimes with listening to these songs it's like think about the bends and then think about these songs totally. and it's just like that leap is just so phenomenal it's like most bands don't have these leaps, so it's really hard to explain exactly why, aside from that they're just really talented and they, I think at this point, were confident enough to like try all these things. I think the aspiration was probably always there. I mean, again, like right. not all bands start as like music, you know, nerds together in the band room. And I know Tom apparently can't even read music and has no interest in doing so. But like, you know, they are... Tom and Johnny are clearly like both kind of competitive and also like right. really yeah. like interested in the form and function of music. That's not the same with all bands, but they got that confidence from people being like increasingly like, oh, we love the bands. Oh, okay, you right. love the bands? Let me, yeah. I have other ideas. <laughs> Allow me to try them. Yeah, I think I think Ed was like, said that the bands was because they made the decision to do what they wanted and then it worked led to OK Computer. Right. Led like to if that it bravery. had failed, they probably, right. we probably wouldn't have even made another album. EMI would be like, bye. No, yeah. Okay. One last thing I want to say before we move on to the reviews is that I sort of said it earlier, but if you go back and listen, you, the audience, not you, Cole, I know you've listened many times, to OK Computer, just think about how Tom York purposely set out to sing in a different way on every song. Because mm. that's crazy and it's really challenging and it's really interesting and to your point you were saying like he started to treat his voice like an instrument as opposed yeah. to like just singing and i think right that probably adds to the overall feeling of the album feeling kind of like 
purposely a little disjointed to make you feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think it's a a perfect kind of segue when we get to, to Kid A That's in terms right. of like his voice as an instrument, like it literally becomes an instrument in terms of like very abstract and just part of the texture more than like the main driving force of a song. Totally. And so you can see the early signs of that throughout OK Computer. Not, definitely not obviously as extreme as what Kid A comes to be, but the seeds are there. Like again, like the bend has has the seeds that then kind of blossom or whatever into OK Computer. It's like we're seeing those signs here with OK Computer that you can start to see what happens with Kid A. It makes sense. Totally. This is also like, I thought interesting. They start to like get these fan sites popping up because the internet mm. is kind of happening and they become right. really important later. There's a little interview about how like they're talking about their own website, but it sucks. But they're saying that there's like fan sites. <laughs> these are better. <laughs> Let me get to the reviews. Where are the reviews? The Guardian. So The Guardian says, there should be a health warning printed on the sleeve. Do not play if you are feeling fragile. LOL. Um, Radiohead's attempt to capture the so-called miserable human condition in 12 songs is surprising and sometimes inspiring, but its intensity makes for a demanding listen. That's kind of what we were saying earlier. I'm not going to read all the reviews because there's a lot. This album was like the best reviewed. Like people lost their goddamn minds. Like this was, you know, amazing perfect, gorgeous, wonderful. We love it. Chris Gow still gave it a B minus, but you know what? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. He gets on board. He gets on board when we get to Kid A. Okay. You know, four stars from Rolling Stone. They win a bunch of awards. Right. Um, it sells super well. And I think it's really funny because this is important to say because that also informs oh, yeah. Kid A. How universally beloved this album was how many awards they win it lands on a bunch of like best album of the year lists it lands on a bunch of best album ever lists right like the next year like under the like right under the beatles or sometimes above the beatles and it's like kind of insane producer dylan says that in 2014 it was included in the Library of Congress (laughs) in the National Recording Registry as culturally historically or aesthetically significant Huge. You know what's not there? It wasn't me by Shaggy, which I believe also came out in Nigeria. Didn't make it. <laughs> Didn't make it into the Library of Congress. Yeah, just fucking huge. Which is so cool. I love moments like this because they took a wild risk and it worked. Totally. And people loved it. And it's not an obvious album that people would love, especially not like quote unquote masses. Because it is different and it is singular and I don't think anything else sounds like it before or since. And to to recognize that in the moment in such a universal way, I think is really, really cool. Yeah. Because that doesn't always happen, obviously. So it's like when it does happen, like I feel like we need to acknowledge it, that it was a great kind of cultural moment. We are at a place in culture where an album like this could be accepted. It's the Beatles effect to me because they had attention they had a very strong fan base. They ended up taking another risk and it paid off. I mean, how many bands were started because of this, you know, because of this record alone? How many bands strived to reach somewhere close to an OK computer? Where did it get us is my question. <laughs> no, but honestly. Well, it got us Coldplay, I think. And I love Yellow. <laughs> a goddamn gorgeous, beautiful song. I have a soft spot for early Coldplay in my Same. heart too. But it's like, you can see the striving of trying to ascend in a similar way and just not coming close. But yeah. yeah, the importance of this album, I think, is just 
kind of speaks for itself. Anyone that has any awareness of music and music history understands the importance of this album. I think it's a singular work. I think to their credit, they did not try to repeat it. And I know we'll probably say most of that conversation for Kid A, but I mean, how many bands are going to do an OK Computer and then take another risk, arguably the biggest risk of their career, and just totally flip? And, and I know there's certain reasons for that, among them like kind of survival and a way to keep the band together. But in terms of its reception and then its effect on the band, I think in terms of a segue to Kid A, I think it's almost in a weird way like another creep in that it propelled them from, I forgot, there's some story where Tom said we were playing to this many people every night and then all of a sudden we're playing to like whatever it was, like 30,000 people. Yeah. And that shock, that in, just that overnight bump, which it was literally overnight after OK Computer came out, really sent Tom specifically into like a spiral that does lead to what Kid A becomes. But I think, yeah, it's a lot of pressure to follow up an album like that. And it's a lot of pressure to then now be performing headlining shows that, you know, tens of thousands of people that are coming to you to see you, you know, totally. no longer Alanis Morissette. Right, exactly. Act. Or PJ Harvey. <laughs> we'll talk about it more after Kid A, which we will talk about obviously next, but I do want to just make a point to bring this up because I want I do want to revisit it when we get to Kid A. There was a great piece about this by Barry Walters later on that talks about how important it was to remember that throughout the 90s, rock stopped being futuristic. Because electronic music kind of handled that. And I would argue hip hop, obviously. And I think it's so cool that Radiohead did it. And I think it's very cool, obviously, even more extent in Kid A. And I think it's very cool that that the world listeners, audience, media celebrated them for it, you know, rewarded them for it. But I, I can't work out my feelings about it. And I think maybe after Kid A, we can figure it out. But like, it didn't push the genre forward as much as it should have. And I, mm. and I don't know why. I think it was because if I had to say now before we get to the end and don't hold me to this because I can have new thoughts, it's that <laughs> what they did was really interesting within their own context. Within the context of, of rock music, it was very interesting. But in the context of music at large, it was maybe not that progressive. I don't know. I, I, I'm still working this out in my mind. Maybe you're saying like, there were other genres now taking the lead in terms of innovation where they were still working within kind of the general parameters of rock music, of whatever, like post, I forgot. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm terrible at the post grunge. Right, right. I mean, stuff, they all call like, Radiohead post rock, right? That was the whole thing about right. OK Computer and Kid A. But I, th- I think I know what you're saying, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, is, is that it wasn't, Rock could kind of come in. This is kind of the beginning of the like, end. Is this the final form? Like, did we, did Radiohead embody the final form of rock music? And is that why it died? <laughs> I mean, it's obviously it's a big sta- statement, but like you think about what kind of bands come after, you think about like the Killers or White Stripes or Limp Bizkit or the, <laughs> that, that too. But it's like all kind of either looking backwards yeah, and like... White Stripes famously. You know, or, or imitating right. Radiohead. Imitating Radiohead or like Limp Bizkit, like the fusion of rap rock. Right, fusion, which, was, which is essentially what Radiohead's kind of doing more more beautifully and right, subtly. Right, but right, right. I, listen, right. I love new metal too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We'll get into it. Thank you so much, Cole. We're going to leave off here. Big cliffhanger, babe. The kid, he is coming. Come back next week.
for part two of Radiohead. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe for more episodes of Bandsplain only on Spotify. Our guest today was Cole Kuchner. Follow him on Twitter at Dissect Podcast and check out his shows Dissect and Keynotes on Spotify. Bandsplain is a Spotify original show. This episode was produced by my just okay computer, producer Dylan, aka Dylan Tupper River, and edited by Cheryl Crosby with help from Casey Simonson, Shannon Cornett, Tari Miller, and Kelly Kyle. Executive producers for Bandsplain are Yossi Salek, me, and Gina Delbeck. Our gorgeous and catchy theme song was composed and performed by Bethany Cosentino and Jennifer Clavin, and graciously recorded by Carlos De La Garza in Los Angeles, California. Special thanks to Robert Adler, Leah Edwards, David McDonough, Dana Meyerson, Jessica Hopper, and the crows I have been feeding peanuts to in the mornings trying to win their love. Come back every Thursday for a new episode of Bandsplain, only on Spotify. I don't know. Is this like nerdy, like music stuff working? No, I love it. It's so interesting. Okay.